0: Now, Beth began her career as a firefighter, then transitioned into the world of dispatch. She herself was a resident of Paradise, California, and was on duty that day when the campfire tore through her community. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into the fire service, the physical impact of the work of dispatch, the mental health impact of the inability to save from the other end of a phone line, and so much more. Before we get to this powerful conversation, I urge you to go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, but most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Beth Bower Enjoy. Well, Beth, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. We have gone back and forth basically since I saw the Netflix documentary on, you know, just one of the many, many, many incidents that you've, you know, had to oversee. Um, But, uh, you know, the, the actual impact of that event and then the crazy fire seasons that we seem to see are continuous now. You know, we're finally able to sit down. So welcome to the show today.
1: I, I appreciate your, uh, your doggedness <laughs> and your patience with me. <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: No problem. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: I am actually in Chico, California. I recently um, sold my house in Paradise for my mental health <laughs> and uh, bought a house down in Chico. So I've been here for two or three months now, I think.
0: Well, congratulations for a start, because I saw the, yeah. the second documentary. I think it was Building Paradise, Rebuilding Paradise. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think people realize the aftermath of something as catastrophic as that.
1: Yeah, it uh, it, it took a toll that I didn't realize that it was taking, uh, ironically, till I got COVID.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I got COVID through work and... Uh, I was home. I got it pretty, pretty bad. I was, I was out for about three weeks and um, I was housebound. I couldn't, I could barely breathe. Like I would have to stop and take a break just walking from like my couch to the kitchen. And I was just stuck inside. My brother was delivering food to my house for me. And um, finally, as I started to get a little bit better, I was like, I just have to get out of the house and I have to drive. I just have to go for a drive and get some kind of fresh air And I went for a drive and seeing paradise, even, you know, two years after, um, everything had happened, it was still like a gut punch. And I think like being stuck in the house for two weeks. So I wasn't seeing any of it and then seeing it, even with the improvements that had been made, you know, people being back and houses being rebuilt, it just, it was just like cutting open this like wound like anew and i was just like i can't keep doing this you know i thought i was going to stick it out and you know pull through and that was my survivor story as i stayed in paradise and and i just realized i couldn't i couldn't keep doing that it was too hard and i think i started looking at houses on the market and looking at selling my house and it just kind of made me realize you know it it was starting to like lighten this load on my shoulders that I didn't realize I'd had because I'd had it there for so long that it just felt normal and then I I kind of finally realized oh no that's not normal
0: (laughs) no well so just before we get into the story so did you lose your house in the fire or were you one of the people that was lucky and, and was missed
1: you know, people say, were you one of the people who was lucky? But I don't kn- know that I feel no, lucky. No,
0: I should rephrase <laughs> that. You, you, let me just be it's, very pure. I mean, so was your house burned or was your house not burned?
1: Uh, both. <laughs> um, I had a, uh, a detached garage with a bunch of stuff in it that I lost. It burned down. And my house did catch fire in a couple different places and took damage, but was still standing and for the most part habitable
0: brilliant so, all right so we'll get to that because there's a reason I asked that specific obviously apart from just the concern side so let's start at the very beginning of your timeline then so tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic what your parents did how many siblings
1: <laughs> um I was actually born in Fresno California which um it's kind of a joke for people from California you know love Fresno it's where my family is but uh, but we moved up here, uh, to Chico and then Durham when I was like six months old. So, um, I've spent most of my, pretty much all of my life in Northern California. Um, I have two older siblings. Uh, my older brother, uh, is five years older than me. And my older sister is only about, uh, 18 months older than me. Uh, my parents both worked for the state, my mom and dad actually met firefighting. My mom was one of the first female firefighters hired by the state of California back in the seventies. And, um, I always find it kind of interesting because at the time they didn't have separate grooming standards for men and women. So she had to cut her hair to a men's style because she had to follow the same grooming standards that they had. So it had to be, you know, it could only be like an inch pulled straight away from the head and it had to go above her ears a certain length and et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, they actually met firefighting down in Fresno and, uh, then she went, uh, kind of transitioned with kids and stuff going to dispatch for Cal fire. She worked at the air base, turning wrenches on planes and stuff for a bit and then went into dispatch then went into dispatch for Caltrans and then became an office engineer for Caltrans. So, um, my dad ended up retiring after 32 years with the state uh, uh, as a fire captain. Um, so grew up pretty poor being the child of two state employees.
0: What? I thought firefighters <laughs> were rich and only worked like three days a, a month.
1: Oh, so when my dad <laughs> and my mom first started, you worked five days a week you had to stay at the station, but you didn't get paid at night. I mean, that was when I was a firefighter, that was the rule. It was called getting your nickel. You didn't get paid for five hours of the night, even though you had to be at the station. And so, yeah, you worked five days a week. I think you got paid like $500 a month and you were not guaranteed your days off. Like there was no protection. There was no, it was just like, get to work, you know? (laughs) And so, uh, Things have drastically improved, but even then, I mean, being state employees, you just don't, you know, I, I don't know if you knew the hubbub quite a few years ago now when we were taking furlough days and we took, uh, three furlough days, which equated to a 15% pay cut for us. And I knew, um, spouses who were like my parents who both worked for the state. So that was the equivalent of a 30% pay cut in your household salary. And you're just like, how do you survive on that? when you already don't get paid that much. to, to begin with. So, yeah, but we, we grew up on a ranch. So, I mean, to have property was heaven. I mean, we grew up with a, it, we didn't have a pool. We had an irrigation ditch we swam in and we'd go crawdad and then an irrigation ditch. And we just thought we were hot stuff because that was awesome. And I, you know, I didn't realize as much when I was younger how poor we were growing up because you're like, we get to ride on a tractor y'all <laughs> and that was fun times <laughs> so but yeah being the travel the two state employees is rough um especially when your dad's gone all the time and your birthday's in july you know <laughs> so um my sister is actually a therapist she specializes in treating first responders um mm-hmm. Yeah, I think working, you know, because my brother's a firefighter. He's actually a battalion chief in the next county over right now. Um, he actually did structural protection on my house during the campfire. And uh, he so it's like my mom worked for the fire department. My dad worked. I do. My brother, my sister was kind of like the black sheep a little bit, but it it kind of worked its way out and came full circle Uh, being a a therapist that specializes first responders because she ended up working for law enforcement uh, with a program called PERT, which is the psychological emergency response team. So she would ride with cops, full uniform, bulletproof vest, everything. And she would go help uh, diffuse and, you know, triage uh, mental health calls. Um, And she's down in San Diego. So you have a lot of veterans a lot of military, uh, homeless, you know, drug and alcohol and mental health issues. And so it was a huge program down there. I, I was, I loved hearing her talk about it. And so working with law enforcement and the military population down there for five years. So, and then she started her own private practice, um, treating, you know, uh, military EMS, fire and police because of those experiences. So.
0: Well, that is such a great family dynamic to, to start with. And this is why I love these these questions. So I want to get to the grooming standards and that ridiculousness in a moment. But um, the the concept of having a counselor ride along to mental health calls is something that actually hits close to home. My, uh, my little boy ended up being um, sent to a three-day psychiatric hold because of a really shit police officer or, or, or deputy in this town. And the, her and the uh, principal basically got together and disregarded every protocol that had been put in place and made up their own rules. Um, and then as we were there, other children were being cycled through. So um, what's happened now, the law has changed where they have to actually call a counsellor. And my point is this, law enforcement teachers, they're not counsellors. Firefighters, we're not counsellors. So what a great program to bring the correct trained people along with the first responder or teacher or whoever it is so that they can make the informed decision and then obviously the the officer or you know whoever it is can then enact whatever their recommendations are.
1: Oh, exactly. I had a very similar situation um in the preludes to my PTSD leave last year, um, with a very awful sheriff's deputy. And and part of it is <laughs> Part of it is, I think they just don't know. Like you said, they're not counselors. They are trained a very specific way for very specific situations. And with the increased mental health crisis that we're experiencing in this country, more and more is being put on their plate that they are not equipped to handle and they're dealing with their own mental health crisis. You know, we're finally seeing huge strides in the field of, uh, in mental wellness and uh, awareness and uh, taking care of people in the fire department. And, And I've been with the department for 17, 18 years, and we're just seeing in the last three to four huge strides being taken. And you consider how far behind we are and the law enforcement is even further behind us because of the stigma attached to it. And so, The stories I hear my sister tell of what law enforcement officers that she has worked with have experienced and gone through breaks my heart. And I just you see these cases with police officers who have been through and and firefighters who are in the news because they've done these terrible things. And I sit there and go, it doesn't excuse the terrible thing that they have done. But if they had gotten help and were part of a supportive environment early from the get go, could that have made a difference? You know, if they weren't required to go to these soul sucking calls that they're not equipped to handle, and you take that burden off of them, and then you have this underlying mental health support system so that after they deal with these crappy calls, pardon me, I don't know if I can
0: <laughs> No, you can trust um, me. You say whatever you yeah! want.
1: I work for the fire department. I have the mouth of a sailor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um you you just wonder how much that can change the dynamic. And so I love what my sister did. I love what she tries to do with her practice and reaching out for employee support services and EAP programs with agencies and departments. And I just, I find what she does amazing and fascinating. And I, I love the hell out of her. And um, she's an amazing person, what she does. And, and people who specialize in first responders therapy, my therapist specializes, I'm pretty sure she sees like our whole county. <laughs> it's amazing because- it just is. I can't imagine how hard it has to be for them, you know.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. And them, when it's,
1: it's amazing. I'm impressed by it.
0: And I think that your profession, dispatch specifically, is the kind of redheaded stepchild that gets forgotten about a lot. So that's one thing I'm. I'm excited with this conversation. I got a friend Dan who was on. Um, and he works in the Orlando area, Um, and, you know, we talked, and and there was, was, you know, so many different things that people just don't think about that I want to kind of unpack when we get to that point. Um, With your mother, though, what a great metaphor for some of the ridiculousness when you hang on to the, it's the way we've always done it. So, (laughs) and I'll give you an analogy, or, you know, a comparison. My son's mother, we're divorced now, but we... Um, worked in Universal Studios in Japan. And they just opened that park. The two other parks that were, you know, standing at that point were in California and Florida. So they had a policy for rain and the Japanese are known to be very respectful. They don't question superiors. And you know, I would I would not do well trying to trying to forge my path in Japan. Um, but, uh, and they started, you know, that we got to the winter and she was on roller skates doing this kind of dance show and it snowed and they kept told him we'll keep going and like what are you talking about it's you know it's it's getting icy down here and we're on skates but it says here it's only in rain that you have to go and do this alternative thing you know what i mean so the common sense is it, like what a, are you talking an, about but
1: analysis paralysis i've heard it uh, with a uh, german uh culture too where they're very technical i mean books and and rules, technical, and they can just do amazing things, but not good at thinking outside the box. And so they encounter a situation like what you described where, oh, it's snowing, and we don't have a rule in the rule book on how to deal with that, and they freeze up and they call it analysis paralysis. Like, what do we do? Well, common sense says. (laughs) Yeah,
0: treat it like rain. (laughs) It's cold rain. Treat it like
1: rain. Or, (laughs) okay, it's different than rain. We come up with this alternative solution. (laughs) Exactly
0: exactly so so it's interesting because obviously the answer is well you know you have male and female grooming standards i get you know physical standards should be the same absolutely but you know when it comes to grooming you know there's many agencies around the world that you know have buns or whatever it is that that women have long hair put into a um some sort of haircut where it's professional and it's out of their way and they can function the same as someone with a short haircut so that's that's kind of funny to hear but i mean as you said we have made strides and i I call certain unions out a lot when they oppose fitness standards and that kind of thing. But, you know, there are some, some good things that unions or, or just, you know, people with big mouths have done to really change a lot of the the ridiculousness in our profession. And, and you know, like you said, not being paid when you're having to be at a station five days in a row. I mean, these are the things that we're not done yet. You know, the, the work week still sucks and I'm still trying to push to get it where it needs to be. But, um, you know, it's pretty cool to hear that it's at least moved from from that to where we are now.
1: Well, and I, I find it interesting because even in my time in the department, like I still sometimes think like I've only been doing this for a few years. And I was talking I was texting a friend the other night that I've known since we were firefighters. And, and he was talking about a new engineer He's like, oh, he acts like he's an old salt dog. And I'm like, yeah, but Adam, we're the old salt dogs. We're getting to be the old. Salt. And I'm like, oh, I might throw up if I think about that too much. Um, <laughs> and I think like compared to even when I first started in the department, when I first started as a firefighter, we, like I said, we didn't get paid for five hours of the night. We worked a four day schedule. Now firefighters work three, we worked four days and we didn't get paid between midnight and five. If I, if I recall it correctly, but if you got woken up for a call, you got paid and we called it getting your nickel. And we're like, yeah, you know, oh, they accidentally set up our quick call, but we don't have a call to go to or we're at a two engine house and the other engine goes to a call, but we got woken up, you still get your nickel. And and some stations, like if it's station 55, they call it the double nickel. And it just cracks me up because I'll make that joke to friends that I know have worked that schedule and, and, and new firefighters like, what do you mean? And I'm like, no, I feel so old. You know, It it's great. It's making strides for them that they, it's BS that they shouldn't have to deal with. It's crap to say, oh, you have to be here and you have to be available for calls. We're not going to pay you. And, um, and at the same time, you're talking about having separate male and female grooming standards. But Cal Fire has actually recently changed that, too. There is still now only one standard because it allows men to have long hair. Because for a long time, there was separate male and female grooming standards. And women could have long hair, but it had to be up off the collar and et cetera, et cetera. And then you started getting guys like, well, I want to grow my hair long. Why can't I have my hair long? Why is my female partner allowed to have hair down to her ass as long as she puts it up in a bun, but I can't have hair like that. It's like, Oh, cause you're a man. And it's like, so, and, and I thought fo- I always found that interesting because I worked with a captain who he retired out of the command center and he was that way. He grew his hair really long. He was very hippy dippy. I love him to death. Shannon. And he wanted to have long hair and he fought that for years and he was kind of allowed to have long hair, even though the grooming standard didn't technically allow it for men because he's like, how can you say that women are allowed to have long hair, but men aren't allowed to have long hair as long as I keep it back and up and professional. And so they've actually gotten rid of that and gone back to one single grooming standard now that allows, you know, cause it is kind of the same thing. Why is one person allowed to have it one way and the other person not? You know, so I, I find that interesting just how much it changes as people realize like kind of the inequality of it and go, oh, we need to rethink this. But you know, it's it's a big government agency and it's bureaucracy, so it always works incredibly slowly and usually defensively <laughs> versus offensively.
0: Absolutely. Well, you think of the the wildland firefighter, especially the you know, the the ones that do it all the time. You know they're out you know hiking in mountains and camping and not showering for days. Grooming standards aren't really top of the priority. <laughs> I mean, I get it if you're you know the p i o and you're constantly going to kids' schools and doing presentations and yeah you know shine your shoes and you know put your your class A's on but there's a point where the grooming standards fall second to you know are you dressed to actually do the job and those two things sometimes get a little confused
1: yeah and and you know, you you talk about the, the wildland firefighters, you know, the forest service, BLM, stuff like that. My heart and, and it's it's kind of coming to a head the last couple of years, but especially this year, the whole firefighter versus forestry technician thing. You know, that you're not firefighters, you're forestry technicians. And it ju- and I'm like, is this I was genuinely shocked. I'm like, is this really a fight you guys are having to still <laughs> fight? Like this is bullshit. You guys are firefighters in every sense of the word and deserve to be paid and given the benefits of and treated with the same respect as any other firefighter. And it it really, it's just that you get that old school mentality in there that just wants to halt and slow progress. And I just go, how do you do that at the expense of people who are killing themselves and breaking their backs and destroying their families for this profession that, you know, you're starting to see now there are we're so short on hand crews, the Forest Service. I mean, hot shots were the pinnacle, maybe aside from smoke jumpers, the pinnacle of wildland firefighter, badass, just kick ass hot shots, you know. And you can't get people on hotshot crews because they're finally going, fuck this. I would rather go work for the railroad and break my back, getting paid three, four times what I'm getting paid now. I would rather go work for a private company. I would rather go work for literally anyone else, maybe doing something I don't love as much, but I get the respect and I get the pay and the benefits I deserve for the work that I do. And we're seeing that, how that is affecting things, especially here in California, the fires we have, we just don't have the crews to do the work we need to do because they're not being paid what they're worth what they deserve for what they are put through
0: yeah and that's what i'm hearing from you know i've had smoke jumpers on i've had hot shots on you know and i i work for anaheim that was probably the closest thing i got to really understanding wildland and i was a (laughs) truck company so they have you know strike teams that go out that are are well well i'm sure we've
1: got some of them up here right now (laughs)
0: probably well so a lot of them are ex-cdf anyway so they kind of gravitate back that way but I wasn't, you know, I was there protecting Anaheim and, you know, working a tiller and being ready for, for structure fires and extrications. But they keep telling me the same thing. The fires are getting bigger and the staffing is getting short. Oh, you know, and that's just, that's, you know, inexcusable. If we're going to ask these men and women to do what, you know, we'll get to one, one of the hugest, you know, hugest, that's a terrible word. One of the biggest, <laughs> big, biggest fires that we've had in a paradise and their staffing is getting less because we're not paying them, we're not supporting them, we're not giving them the rest and recovery that they need. Then shame on us as a nation, you know. And it's the same with you know we've seen now like we were throwing our responders out into the fray while everyone was sheltering in their houses, and now we're saying if you don't get the vaccination, you're fired. You know, it, there's there's no the the, the kind of nine eleven nine twelve mentality is very short short lived. You know, and now those same incredible men and women that were responding to the pile now having to fight to even get benefits, you know, when they're dying of cancer. I mean, it's just it's it's disgusting to me. But I mean, it's, you know, hearing your voice as well. It's something that we need to really, you know, I say we like collectively is so many things. But, you know, this this particular issue as well needs to be brought out to the forefront. If we're going to if we're going to ask people to go into a burning forest the least we could do is make sure they're well-trained, well-equipped and give and given the time to recover from that.
1: Oh, God. Yeah, especially with, you know, as we've said, how much conditions have changed. I mean, just from the time I was a firefighter, when I was a firefighter, you were stoked if you could work four to five months. I mean, and to be fair, that was Northern California. It was a little different in Southern California but you were stoked. If you could work four to five months, three months was kind of the norm for the newbie firefighters, seasonal firefighter ones, because the season, just, you would get picked up into May, June, July, August, maybe September. You know, they might start closing some stuff up September. They would keep maybe one engine at two engine house staff because they're waiting for the Santa Anas to start blowing in SoCal. And that was what you were waiting for was the fires in SoCal and a career fire, the Cedar fire, I don't know if you remember that one back in 2003, that was a career fire. You did that once in a career. And, and now you look at it, nine months, that's the max we can hire seasonals for before they have to be laid off and their clock has to get uh, reset. Nine months is the norm. There is no one, unless they quit early, there is no one not working nine months anymore. And the fires aren't in Southern California anymore. They're in the North, they're in the timber. And they're, you know, the fires in the South that used to be during the Santa Anas and, you know, October, maybe November are now occurring in December and January. And you just, just in the last 15 years, you see that shift and then just in the last five to seven you see how much it's shifting up to NorCal and it's shifting to these huge timber fires and it's shifting to, you see like the largest fires um, in state history, which, you know, honestly is kind of almost like, you know, countrywide because no one has worse firefighters than, or fires in California. It seems like have all occurred in the last five to 10 years. And it's, it's, it's just, it's so different. It's so different. and it, and it's moving at a speed that again, a large agency like Cal Fire, any large you know government agency, doesn't move that quickly. <laughs> and so people are having to be like, you ha- in order for those changes to take place, the people on the ground, the people in management positions have to be able to wrap their head around that change. And you know, I, I love my dad. He but he retired 14, 12, 14 years ago and sometimes i have conversations with him and, and it's he doesn't see the difference cuz he's not working it necessarily you know he he acts like oh it's still the same as it's always been and it's like it's not <laughs> it's so not it's so different than what it was like when you were when you were firefighting seasons are so different and and it so the people have to see the change before you can start implementing you know, the processes and the policy change and the staffing changes and the pay changes, et cetera. And it's just such a slow moving process that we we're just we can't keep up.
0: Yeah. Well, and like I said, Jason Ramos, smoke jumper, told me the same thing. Ben Strawn, uh Hotshot told me the same thing. So, you know, these men and women from all these different lenses are seeing it. And, you know, it almost seems like some of the pushback is, oh, it's not global warming. You Call it what you want. Call it the, <laughs> the pink unicorn. It's obviously <laughs> something that's happening, you know. So, you know, we don't need to label it. We need to, you know, Bless it. yeah, we need to, you know, do um, prescribed burns and we need to increase staffing and we need to maybe, you know, maybe even put shelter in place uh, areas where you have towns that maybe can't get out because of their access problems, you know, and the, all these proactive things. And I am far removed from the wildland department i'm not going to pretend i understand it at all but these are some of the common things that the, you know, the guys i've had on that are in that area have, have told me you know so but we if you keep just denying climate change or you know seasonal um growth or, you know whatever you want to call it then we're going to keep losing citizens and we're going to keep losing firefighters
1: absolutely absolutely
0: so talk to me about your journey into the fire service was that something that you dreamt of as a kid
1: You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do Um, for a while. I thought I wanted to be a teacher. I I wasn't totally sure. And then um, Butte County um, started an Explorer program and I joined it right after it started. I remember they had like flyers uh, at my high school advertising it. And uh, it was something Garrett Scholand, he's actually one of our division chiefs in the, in the unit started when he was, oh gosh, was Garrett an engineer? Was he a captain? It was so long ago. I, w- I was 14. You had to be 14 to join. And I joined it just because I thought it sounded interesting. Like at the very least, even if it wasn't something I did as a career, it just sounded like a fun opportunity. And I think you also, part of you feels like, what else am I going to do? This is what everybody else in my family is doing (laughs) or has done. Um, Like, I think at that point, my brother was already volunteering. It might've been close to when he was getting his first seasonal job. And so I just, you kind of feel like, well, everybody else has done this. So I guess I can too. I don't know what else I want to do. And, and I just, I loved it. I loved the Explorer program any Explorer program is such a great program for the youth. God, I sound old saying that, uh, for kids, for teenagers, it, you know, it, I know I had friends who were in the police Explorer program in Chico and I just, it is such an awesome experience to, I mean, I used to, I knew kids in high school who were, you know, out partying on the weekends and I was doing ride-alongs at the fire station and I was (laughs) going, I was going to the medicals of the friends in high school who might have had too much to drink <laughs> at the party. And, you know, I'm getting to like go to wildland fires. I went to a fire with my brother one time when I was older, uh, his engine, an engine that he was on or something, you know, and there's a picture of us I think it was my senior year in high school. There's a picture of us, you know, on the side of the road after it was put out. And, um, and I, just it, it was just such like, who else is getting to do that? <laughs> Who else do you know? is was like 17 getting to ride on a fire engine, you know, and that was just so that became my focus. And um, I got a seasonal job when I was 18 and I loved it. But I think part of the problem was, and this sounds so arrogant to say, and I don't mean it to. And I think I, I was too smart for where I worked. I worked in a unit with people who valued, can you hike until you die? Great, we love you. But is it, can you triage a medical scenario? Are you an EMT? Can you think critically? Can you, oh, you can do, you wanna go to school? Like it was frowned upon. And I, I had a captain who intentionally kept me on uh, on duty, even though I shouldn't have, I should have been let go. Um, so that I would have to drop classes. Cause I, in, in the fall semester of college, uh, there was a little bit of overlap with firefighting. And I, my first season, I worked it out with my teachers and I would, you know, this was before online was as big of a thing. And, um, I would take my backpack with me when we would go on strike team assignments and I would do my homework and I would get assignments from them. And, and, but the thing was, if you miss too many classes in the beginning, you get dropped. And he intentionally kept me on duty at the beginning of the semester to get me dropped from my classes because he just thought I was so highfalutin trying to go to school. And I, this particular captain, um, you know, he was it was it was a stereotype. He was just a cliche of forestry stereotypes, dip in your lip, watch a NASCAR, you know, if he could drink a beer at the station, I'm sure he would have. Just, you know, hillbilly window licking, dirt. Bitter. And I was not those things. I, you know. I wanted to do more. I wanted to get a college education. I didn't want to just drag my knuckles in the dirt. And, but I loved Cal Fire CDF at the time. And, but I wanted to do it with CDF. And he, it just, he made up paperwork on me. Like at one point, he tried, he held up a piece of paper and tried to say it was a write up the previous year from one of my captains. And, And I could see through it because there was light shining behind it. And it was a blank piece of paper. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like you said, not the sharpest tool in the box.
1: (laughs) No. And, and, and with our union, like there can't be, there was some protection for us at the time. We weren't covered by the firefighter bill of rights yet, but you know, there were things like you couldn't have anything in your file that you hadn't personally seen and signed. So he's saying, oh, there's this write up. And, and I knew I'm like, there can't be because I don't know what you're talking about. And then oh, I see this blank piece of paper. But at the same time, I'm also a scared 19 year old kid that was never taught my rights. The union didn't give a crap at the time about their firefighter ones. We were a commodity. And we at the time were a dime a dozen. there were 10 other people willing to take your spot fighting to take your spot and I didn't know my rights and was never taught my rights and I thought I just have to keep my head down and shut up and not make waves and I will be okay like I you know I, I don't want to get fired not realizing you can't fire me <laughs> for that. And I don't want to get sent out to some outlying station in the middle of nowhere, even though he couldn't do that. And, but I didn't know any of that. I just wanted to keep my head down and be, be the good kid and and just muscle my way through it. And I just didn't conform to what he wanted. And I, uh, it, yeah, he, he was abusive to say the least, you know? And, and I think part of it had to do with the fact that I was female, but I think part of it just had the, a fact to do with the I just wanted more for myself, and I think he took that as a personal like insult. And it was amazing how much control one person could have over your career, um, in that regard. And so i i ha- I had to get away from it, and so I ended up getting it. That's how I got into dispatch. I had been testing for it. My mom you know, it kind of been like, you know, I just think that's something you would be really good at. I think that's something you have the skills for. And I, it was originally just kind of a, you know, emergency situation backup plan. And I was going to kind of do it temporarily and then maybe get back into firefighting. And it just, I, I love dispatch. (laughs) I really, I mean, I love firefighting. I miss it tremendously, but I, you know, I think I found my, my niche with dispatch
0: beautiful yeah i mean firstly the the ego involved with some of the you know the the higher ranks you know if you can't control your ego then then you got no business wearing that you know those those bugles on your collar or whatever whatever significant uh, signifies your your rank but yeah i mean if you're threatened by someone else's success that should be a huge red flag to your own lack of humility and i
1: think it's just it was the old school it it takes time to move past that. You know, it was the old school. We joke about it with Cal Fire. Oh, it's, old, it's old school forestry, you know, hot breakfast at six, lunch at noon, dinner at five, you know, working past five, like, I don't give a crap about your union rights. Like it just don't treat the employee like an employee who's a person, treat them like, again, a, a commodity and, I got treated like crap as a firefighter one. So I'm going to treat you like crap as a firefighter one. And it's this perpetuating thing. And it's like, no, you know, we can do better and we can be better and it it is happening. You know, it is, we don't treat people like that anymore, but I mean, it was even shifting when I was, when I was a firefighter, I just happened to work in a very slightly backwards unit. (laughs) It's, it's, it's better now. I don't want to pretend like it's not like that, but it's, it's you know, like with everything, it's a slow moving process because the people who are part of it, who contribute to it have to be phased out.
0: Absolutely. So talk to me then, you know, you've, you've done the Explorer program, you've done Seasonal Firefighting, now you're in a dispatch center. So how was that transition for you?
1: <laughs> it was hard Partly because I went from working up here in Northern California, I got, took my first dispatch job in San Bernardino. (laughs) So I had moved away. I needed, you know, just space and I needed to do something different. And so I kind of went for the furthest. I got offered a couple different places up here in Northern California. One of them was the unit that I had worked in as a firefighter one. And I was like, nope, no desire to go back there. Um, and so I just took the offer that I had that was the furthest away unit and that was San Bernardino and, uh, I lived in Riverside. So it was a, it was a, it was a harder transition maybe than it needed to be because I was living on my own for the first time. So I was having to figure out finding an apartment and paying bills and, you know, Hey, you ran out of money. What are you going to do for food? And, uh, I was homesick. I you know, was in a kind of a contentious relationship that caused issues, and then learning this whole new job in a whole new location. So, and it was a whole new region. And I'm like, I grew up. I knew, you know, Butte County and Tama and Glenn and Cluson and Nevada, Yuba Plaster. I knew all the surrounding area and geography pretty well. And now I'm in this area. I'm like. Where the F is San Bernardino, like Mono, Inyo counties, where are those places? Like I had never really been south of the grapevine before. And I was so out of my element in regard to that. And so I'm having to learn this whole new job in a new region in trying to pretend like I'm an adult and I'm just, I was overwhelming <laughs> but the dispatch part, I think I took to pretty well. I, they took me off of training and had me working night shifts by myself within three months, which having now at this point, 15 years in trained umpteenth number of, of com ops that not normal usually takes a bit longer than that. So I was pretty proud of myself.
0: Absolutely. So tell me what the, the shift pattern looks like for dispatch in your department.
1: So com-ups in our department work uh, 3 three-four-four-three. So we do 3-on, 4-off, 4-on, 3-off. And we work 12-hour shifts. And depending on what unit you work in, um, it can vary what those hours are. Um, in Butte, we work 7A to 7P and the flip 7P to 7A. And um, when I worked in San Bernardino, it was 8 to 8 um some units do six to six some have enough staffing they allow swing shifts but it is typically 12 hour shifts um on a three four four three rotation
0: all right so as i started doing this you know and i was talking as as i said to my friend dan it kind of hit me of, of some of the issues that are unique to you know many people in dispatch so is your particular dispatch one of these, these anomalies I hear that they've actually got windows and it's light in there or is it like <laughs> most of them that are like a cave with a bunch of computers in?
1: I will say the nice thing is so I've worked in three command centers um, in my time with the department. I worked in San Bernardino, I worked in um, NEU out of Grass Valley and I worked uh, now in BTU in Oroville. And they've actually all been very. Uh, not caves, night, um, light. And San Bernardino, we only had one visible window, but it was because all of the other windows on the side of the room were offices. But if the windows and the offices were open, you let a lot of light in. And, um, so there are, they're not total caves. That is that is a, a nice thing. And, but a lot of people like them to be caves. That's the thing. They want the lights down. They want the air conditioner set to cold. They want it dark. They want the windows closed. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I've worked night shifts for so long. I want to see sunlight. Let's open the windows. Let's turn the lights on because otherwise I'm going to get sleepy. <laughs>
0: yeah well the thing is as well with with the circadian rhythm, you know if you people don't think about this, if you work in a prison, if you work in a dispatch center, if you work even in an e r and you start at seven a m let's take the winter time where well, you came to work and it was dark now go to seven p m and you're leaving when it's dark, so that completely messes up the human body because you don't really have any any um natural kind of input telling you, hey, it's morning, hey, it's evening, you should be sleepy now, you know it's it's time to go to bed so The same way that sleep deprivation destroys a lot of us in the fire service and a lot of people in the fire service, if they're not running calls, will close all the windows and have the AC down and, you know, stay away from the sun. But as I think people are starting to realize now through COVID, you know, the sun is incredibly healing. The sun is incredibly important to set circadian rhythms. So for those professions that work in artificial light, um, you know, it's very, very damaging to, to the hormonal system.
1: Well, and like you said, sleep, sleep in general is huge. And, you know, again, because we're this slow moving beast, they're finally putting the emphasis on the importance of sleep, good, healthy sleep for your employees when you're able to get it. You know, you can't control the calls that you're running. You can't control when an incident happens and your 12 hour shift now becomes a 16 hour shift and you're not getting the sleep you usually get, you know, and I worked when I was in San Bernardino, I worked night shifts for six years straight. Never. I, if I worked day shift, it was because I was working overtime and it broke me. I I say that sometimes as a joke, but I say that very seriously, that physically broke me to this day. And that was nine years ago that I worked there because it took such a toll, especially when I was younger, I started there when I was 21. And then you do six years of night shifts during kind of your formidable years. And it takes a physical toll on your body. Sleep is such a delicate thing for me now where, you know, and and I get in fights with people about it. We're like, Oh, let's stay out and go to this. I'm like, no, I have to go to sleep because if I am still awake and it's two in the morning, my body's going to think, Oh, you're up all night. And it doesn't matter that I've already been up for 16 hours It's going to think I need to be awake and I will be tired, but I won't be able to fall asleep. And where it might take a normal person, you know, 15 minutes to fall asleep, it takes me two to three hours to fall asleep. And yet I have to conform into, you know, a a 7am day shift or a 7pm night shift and then try to be normal on my days off. And it is so severely damaging to your physical health, to your mental health, and I will always push, you know, I, I, I've gotten into kind of fights with senior dispatchers about this when we, when it comes to new shifts, like I've done my time and I want to be on a permanent day shift. And I'm like, I get that. And I'm senior enough where that would apply to me too, but I will not do that to new people. I had that done to me. It physically and mentally fucked me up. And I will not inflict that on another person. As long as I'm in a position where I can have an opinion on that, I will push that to the ends of the earth on rotating day and night shifts because permanent night shifts is so damaging that I, I, won't, I won't be a part of that if I can avoid it.
0: So with the three on four off, four on three off, um, does that put you at what, like 44 hour weeks, something like that?
1: Our short week is a is 36 hour week and our long week is a 44 hour week. Yeah.
0: Okay. So average 40, about 40 then.
1: 48, excuse me, 48.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so you're up there then. Um,
1: yeah. So we're on, we're on a two week, a two week cycle that essentially equals 40 hours each week with four hours, technically of like mandatory shift overtime on our long week. But that's when we're at full staffing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which I've heard a lot in dispatch
1: yeah that never that never Full staffing you said pink unicorn earlier and i think that's more
0: more real
1: world than full staffing
0: so that's but my point though with wildland with dispatch with you know police and fire and ems you know and then er you know physicians and nurses the the thing that i think is so lost and we seem to work so much more than the people that sleep in their beds every night And it drives me up the wall if you're gonna ask someone to a stay up all night and then b lay their life on the line that should require a different kind of work week a different kind of complete philosophy because those men and women have to recover from being awake while you were sleeping safely in your home and what we see is the absolute opposite the office worker taps out at 40 hours and the average firefighter, you know, the, the municipal firefighter is about 56 hour work weeks. And obviously, federal, you get into 72, um, you know, and it's just insane. So that is a paradigm shift that we need in all our professions is that's fine. You want to keep human beings awake through the night. Absolutely. But we need to give them over and above the rest and recovery so they can go back to as close as normal. So that doesn't destroy their life, their mental health, their physical health.
1: Oh God, Yeah. I, I look at our guys. One of the things with me in dispatch, I always say is that I'm like the mother hen and all my field units. Cause at this point I've known a lot of them for, I mean, like I said, Garrett Sholem was my advisor as an explorer and he's a division chief now. So they're all my little ducklings. They're all my little baby chickens and I want them to be safe and sound. And I do what I do primarily for them. I do it for the public. They are, but Good, bad, or indifferent, whatever someone might say, the public should be first. I do what I do for my field units first, and I do it for the public second, because those field units—they're my dad, and they're my mom, and they're my brother, and they're my sister, and they're my friends that I've known for years, and and I want them to get to the call safely, to get back to the station safely, and to get home safely. That is my priority. And you sit there and go, okay, you've made it in those regards, but in the long run. Are you making it through life safely? And is it, are, you know, are you happy and content and mentally well and emotionally well and spiritually well, because what in the long run is the job doing to you? And, and sometimes it's criticisms, like you're talking about, oh, you know, oh, well, you're sleep, you know, people are at home sleeping. And I, and I don't know how many times I've heard the, you know, our guys work 72s. Oh, well, you sleep for most of that. And it, it makes me so angry when I hear people say that, because I sit there and I go, not at some of the busier stations, first off, you know, they're, they're getting a call every two hours, which is just enough, if not more than that. But a call every two hours is enough to make it so you don't sleep at night. And then you get, even the stations where maybe you're only getting a call one a night or none. I don't think I ever slept well at a fire station because you're, they already show studies prove you don't sleep well in unfamiliar environments. That's why a lot of people say they don't sleep well in hotels and stuff like that. So you are, you know, you, are, you're already not sleeping well because you're in a potentially unfamiliar environment. There's always that. Did I hear a call did I? Cause you don't want to sleep through a call you know, did the quick call go off? What happened? Blah. And if the quick call does go off, that takes however long off your life to wake up from a sleep to, Oh my God. And I have to get up and I have to get dressed and Oh God, I have to pee real quick. Oh God, I need to get to the engine. And, you know, and then whatever you're get your head on, right. To go to the call that, you know, someone is life is depending on you. And, and then you have to decompress from that call to try to go back to sleep please like, okay, you know, that's a superpower. I would, I'm sure a lot of people wish that they had, but it's just, and then you go to days off and I don't know any firefighter who doesn't say they need that first day to just decompress, to get back to normal life. I'm on my time on my schedule, but then it's you have your normal responsibilities. If you're married and with kids, it's like, okay, you have been gone and I need you to take care of these things. And the kids need you to do this and you need to be able to do. And it's like, you haven't necessarily had a chance to decompress. And and then you go back to work and you still haven't decompressed. And when is that decompression happening? You know, you're going to get explosive decompression (laughs) and that's not good for anybody. (laughs) And so it's just like the shifts, the sleep, the recovery, the support, it, it, it all ties in, but it's something that you don't see until someone's been doing it for 15 years, getting screwed and boned and not getting the decompression. And then now we're seeing, you know, an increase in suicides and an increase in people quitting maybe because of, you know, drug or alcohol issues or, you know, self-harm issues. And it's like, well, oh, where's all this coming from? And the people on the ground are just kind of like record scratch, like looking at you like, really? Really? We're asking where this is coming from?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And that's something i talked about a lot. And another area I think at dispatch that people don't think about is you're in a chair for 12 hours a day. So now you have already the hormonal disruption from the shifts, but now you have inactivity you know, and 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 you know, not exactly a long window to go prepare food and get some sunshine. So now, you know, I don't know if you see this in your center specifically, but I've seen it in a lot of places I work where obesity is definitely a thing in dispatch. And, you know, again, record scratch, are you surprised? You know, you keep these people in a dark yeah. room for twelve hours sitting in a chair.
1: Oh yeah. We call I, I call it dispatcher button and gut. And uh it it is, it's, it's important. We, I've had captains who they jokingly weigh themselves when they get assigned to the ECC the first day and oh, what do we weigh once we leave? And it's like, yeah, it's funny, but it's also, you know, it's a, it's that kind of morbid sense of humor that we have in the department where you go, wait a minute, this is funny, but it's also really serious and we kind of need to address it. And, you know, I think that again, progress is being made but it's just slow progress you know we we're fortunate in our center we uh, dispatch air ambulances for the surrounding counties and so we get money from that that is just for us that's kind of just discretionary income so we get to buy things with that that normally we wouldn't be able to potentially buy which is some, you know, desk treadmills and desk spin bikes and some extra weights and a rowing machine. And you sit there and go, why is workout equipment something someone normally wouldn't be able to buy? Well, for the stations, it is. They'll go, they go out of their way to buy workout equipment for the stations, but dispatch centers, ECCs are not often considered in that. Like you don't have a physically demanding job that requires you to be able to lift you know, a 200 pound adult. And it's like, no, but I do have an incredibly stressful job that requires that I kind of have a healthy heart. So I don't have a massive heart attack when I'm dealing with this incredibly stressful situation. And I'm pumped up on Red Bull and, you know, five bangs because I haven't slept properly in a week. And, you know, it, you know it's not a physically demanding job. No, but it's still unhealthy to be in the situation that we're in.
0: Yeah. Well, another thing as well that that I've just to, to jump in a second um, that people don't think about is when we have that adrenal response, when you have one of those calls that gets your heart rate up, um, you know, if we're on a fire, if we respond to that call and it actually is a fire or actually is an extrication, well, we have that physical exertion as you would fighting for your life, as you would running from the bear so that, you know, the the adrenaline is used up, you know, you flush out those stress hormones. When you have that, either on a cancel call as a fire or you know or police officer, or as a, an acute call as a dispatcher, you're not getting to offload that stress physically. You're still sitting in a chair, even though your heart rate is pounding and, and you're full of stress hormones now.
1: Well, and, and and in addition to that, um, my sister being a therapist, this is something I've kind of read up on and talked with her about. Is I, I'm sure talking to a lot of first responders, you've heard about EMDR.
0: Uh, Have you heard of that? Yes, absolutely. So
1: EMDR is huge um, in treating first responders and brain spotting. And part of of that is that they say, you know, no other animals deal with stress or or have issues with stress like human beings. And there are studies that show it's because animals have to walk off. They're, They're walking constantly on the move. For survival, And in that walking, you get this by bi, the bipedal, which is like a binaural it's, it's activating both sides of your brain because you're doing this left side, right side, left side, right side, which with EMDR is what that's activating. Cause you're looking left, right, left, right. And you're reprocessing it in your brain with that bilateral sensory activation and stuff. And so when you're in dispatch, you don't get to walk it off. You're stuck there sitting or standing. And so, you know, in some fields, you know, fire physical fields, you can go pace or walk or go work out PT because it's expected in your job. You're not sitting at a fire station, typically, unless you're taking your, you know, safety nap in the afternoon. You're not sitting doing nothing. You're working. And in that working, you're doing that right, left, bilateral brain activation, which even if you don't realize it, that is helping you process trauma. And in dispatch, because we are stuck there and we are sedentary, you're not even doing that basic trauma processing of walking. And so it, we, I try to push it with trainees. I try to remind myself to do it, that if I take a really shitty call, go walk just go walk. You don't have to think about the call. You don't have to, you're not, you know, going through processing the trauma, but just walk because even that is a form of bilateral stimulation that can help you process it without actively trying to, that we don't get unless we actively seek it out in a dispatch center.
0: Absolutely. And that's, that's what makes the treadmills and the, the, the bikes so important. You know, I've I've had that in a lot of groups that are healing, you know, they go rock together. And I just had someone the other day who, talked about kayaking and again same thing left arm right arm left arm right arm so you know that makes perfect sense to me
1: yeah it's just it, and and the unfortunate thing you know talking about unions our union because it isn't considered vital to our job we don't get time for PT there you know whereas in the the MOU for bargaining unit eight which is the field personnel they are given an hour of PT a day they are required to be given an hour of downtime for PT a day. We have nothing like that in our MOU. And so a lot of the times, because our MOU is so vague in a lot of areas, we get treated like bargaining unit eight and they go, Hey, you don't have anything that addresses this. So we'll treat you like bargaining unit eight. Here's your hour. But the problem is, is in a, in a command center, the, the captains and the battalion chiefs are so transitory. They, you know, they're usually there for their two year required stay. And then they transfer out. That all it takes is one crappy captain or battalion chief to go, no, your MOU doesn't say you're allowed an hour for PT. You do not get an hour for PT, sit at your pod for 12 hours. And that's not common, but having been in this job, literally, uh, six days will be my 15 year anniversary, but having been in this job, I worked with enough captains and battalion chiefs to know those types of people are out there and they will push that and you see you know i i remember before i went out on my medical leave my pt was the only thing keeping me sane at the time um i was going to a gym regularly i was i had a a dietitian i rode my road bike i was very active and i would get so much pushback for my pt time in my center from the people i worked with like it was incredible and it started to become very uncomfortable for me like i would pt before i got to work and i'd say hey i pt'd early in the morning i just want the first like half hour to go shower and get dressed and it it was almost like well because i wasn't pting in that time they didn't like that i was doing that well, you're not pting i know but i'm taking my time that i would normally get to pt to shower because i have already pt'd and i'm coming in right before work cuz my gym just had very narrow hours and, you know, you start getting kind of the side eye and offhand comments. Oh, you're taking so long, even though you're not taking any longer than anybody else. And, oh, you're, and it just starts as whispers and it just starts to make you uncomfortable that you go, okay, no, I just, I won't say anything and I'll just, okay, I won't, I won't PT today. And, and then one lost day of PT leads to another lost day of PT, which leads back into that sedentary. And then, you know, it just all starts to crumble from there. And it and it it just is very frustrating when you don't have that support because of how important the physical aspect is, especially in a sedentary job, to mental and physical well being.
0: Yeah. And I agree completely, whether it's dispatch, whether it's you know, if it's an EMS only side as well, everyone should be under that umbrella. You should Oh, absolutely. You should have that opportunity. And even if it's for a walk, even if it's sit there and meditate, you know, something that will make you better than you were the day before.
1: Yes, exactly. Even if, yeah, you know, literally it's, Hey, you know, I, I kind of finally stopped asking and just started doing, Hey, I'm going for a walk. Not, Hey, can I go for a walk? You know, I, I've been, I know my center well enough. We're not busy. This isn't a busy time. I'm not working on anything. It's I'm going for a walk because I, I, in my center, I have more time cumulative, cumulatively in a center than everybody else I work with. And so I kept putting it in the hands of other people of, Hey, is this okay? And that gave the answer for a no, the possibility for a no to be like, these people have no idea what cumulatively I've been through because they haven't been through it. They don't understand the load that, that you're kind of bearing because they don't have to bear it because they have, don't have to They haven't been there for that long. And, and so I just kind of go, I know what's right for me and I know what's healthy for me and I will never put myself really before the job. So if we're busy, obviously I'm not going to get up and leave, but I will just say I'm going for a walk. I need to go. I need to, I need to not be in here right now because either I had a shitty call or I've been too cooped up or I just need some air. I need to go do this.
0: Well, speaking of that, so as a firefighter, as a medic, you know I've I've been on calls where, you know, the the cardiac arrest is still holding the phone. You know, I mean, so we don't think about that. As responders, we you know we get off our vehicles and we're the first thing the you know those people see or the first people that arrive on that scene. However. You know, the the lesser acknowledged fact is the dispatcher was talking to that person until they bled to death, until their their husband bludgeoned them to death, until they had that cardiac arrest and you heard the last breath. So I don't think a lot of kind of focuses on, you know, what you guys go through. And when we get to paradise, obviously, it's going to be, you know, heartbreakingly um, evident. But before that, you said about cumulative. As you walk through your career, are there any calls that really kind of, you know, stung when it came to the 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 feeling of helplessness because you're at the end of a phone while someone else is either, you know, dying medically or, or even from, from an assault or something?
1: I, I will say I'm only answering this question because it's you asking it in this environment. I typically don't like this question. Um, and I'm sure you've experienced it where people, oh, what's the worst call that you've ever been to or that you've ever had? Yeah. And I I like I used to laugh it off and I, I finally I've had to learn to temper it because when I first started doing this, it was a little aggressive. <laughs> but I I go, how do we rephrase that? Let's rephrase that. You're not asking what's the worst call I've ever been to. You're asking what is the most traumatizing thing you've experienced? I want you to tell it to me for entertainment purposes. Not that I'm saying that's what you're doing, but. I. I annoys me when the public does that the general public but i think part of it is they don't realize what they're asking you to do so i'm i will answer it for for this because of um the uh audience of you know they get it
0: like-minded people <laughs> yeah because you know it's yes. not it's not about if people ask me oh what's the worst thing I'm like well which one fucking pick one because yeah. they were all awful yeah
1: and it's it's not for morbid entertainment no. it's not like ooh, let's compare you know ooh, tell me the gross gory details like when you tell as you said like minded people there's that sympathy in that yeah i get it Fuck, i'm sorry you know they versus the ooh, more ah let me get my popcorn so um yeah they're and 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 i know them partly too because they came up when i was dealing with my ptsd leave because you know, workman's comp sucks and you have to relive all the gory details for them. And um, I think one of the, the ones that sticks in my head was it, it, when I worked in NEU in Grass Valley, um, I had an older man call and he was by himself and uh, he was having a massive heart attack. And you could tell he was having a massive heart attack. I mean, all the signs, like cliched, stereotypical signs and symptoms. And I, I've been an EMT and I'm, you know, been an EMT on an engine. So I'd experienced that firsthand as well. And the hard part was he was by himself in a very rural area. And he actually, I don't know that he died while he was on the phone with me, but I heard him drop. I just heard the onto the floor and the phone go down, but the phone line was still open and it, he died Uh, and the engine got lost trying to get to him. And so it took them longer to get there than it should have. And I'm just, sir, please answer me, please wake up, please. Can you hear me just begging because I'm just sitting there and if there was someone else there with them, I could have them do CPR and we all know how ineffective CPR is, but if they were able to start it as soon as he went down, that raises its efficacy and it could have been helpful. And I'm just sitting there going, you feel so beyond helpless of I, if I could just reach through this phone and I remember I actually got a commendation through our EMD uh Pro QA program for it. And I had to listen to the recording. And I just remember being like, I want to do this. Like I I this is like, and you could just hear me getting teared up, just going like, sir, please, please answer me, like almost in tears and on the radio, where the F are you? To the engine, you know. And it just it broke my heart because you just sit there and go, never do you feel more pointless. Then in that moment, like why am i even here? What is the point of my job? Because i couldn't help him and i couldn't physically pick up the engine and put them at his house and i couldn't do anything but just try to reassure him help is on the way. Help is on the way. Is there anyone nearby we can call that can come over and keep an eye on you because that was my fear was that he was going to go down by himself. And that that was a really hard one. Um, and then I think anything involving parents with kids, um, whether it's the kids, I had a little girl call in her dad's heroin overdose while she was getting ready for school. She's 10 years old and it didn't sound like first time she'd had to do it. You know, and then I had two parents doing CPR on their son. I remember his name because they were calling him, you know, please don't, please don't die. You know, I'm not going to say his name out of respect for them, but you know, his name is stuck in my head and, and the parents were just eerily calm because I mean, he was in a hospital bed. They had an Ambu bag, you know? So when we got to doing breaths with CPR, they had the bag to do the breaths and like he was chronically ill but still no parent should have to do CPR on their child. And the fact that they were so calm about it told me like they had prepared for this. Like this was not an unusual circumstance for them. And I just go, that is unusual in and of itself. And like hearing these parents be so calm, but the mom is crying, but she's keeping it together to be able to follow the instructions that you're giving. And you're like, yes, in this moment, I am being effective, And I'm doing my job and I am helping them. But at the same time, all I want to do is just hug these people and help just touch their son, you know, and bring him back and just say, you shouldn't have to do this. And again, you just feel pointless because, you know, in those situations, nothing I am doing in the long run will make this situation better will make those parents not have to deal with the chronic illness of their child, will make that child healthy, will make them not have to face the mortality of their of their son. And you just you just sit there and go, you're just this really shitty bystander. And it just feels almost invasive. Like I shouldn't be a part of this. And am I, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's hard to describe, but you just and those are the calls, too, where you keep the phone on after the engine gets there because you want to hear them put the AED on and you want to hear, you know, shockable rhythm. And you want to hear a shock and you want to hear CPR starting because you think, OK, someone someone's doing something because it, you don't get closure. You don't get closure on these calls. The phone hangs up and then you you have to go to the engine hey did did they make it and you have this fear of doing that because you don't want the engine to have to relive a traumatic call you know and you don't want to have to put them through it again and and you just you don't always know the outcome and if it's not a frequent flyer which you know the really bad ones usually aren't you never know is he okay are those parents okay you know, did this person make it? Did this CPR help? Did what I do count for anything?
0: Yeah, and we even got that as, as medics, you know, firefighter paramedics. A lot of the agencies, the moment you offload the patient, they want you to clean and get, get you know, back in service for the next one. And, you know, we don't get closure with that. And it's really hard if they're not still in the ER and you happen to transport to that same hospital and you can ask that nurse that you, you know, gave the patient to, hey, how are they doing? Once they get lost in the system, whether it's the morgue or upstairs, it's so hard, and you know, and you, and you run 15, 20 calls in a shift, you know, by the time you've already forgotten about that one because you've had, you know, two more people die or whatever whatever happened that shift. Um, and, yeah, I t- had the... Uh, Dr. Peter Antevi, and he talked about that a lot, you know, like we have to have, we have to be able to close the call, whether it's as a dispatcher, whether it's as, you know, a firefighter or a paramedic. And if it, you know, we keep having these open calls, that's one of the cumulative effect that, you know, causes a Jenga collapse at some point.
1: You just, you need to find things to celebrate. You need the small victories because sometimes the defeats, I mean, you don't need to win. You don't need a W in every column, but you need a W because when all you're getting is losses, you know, you just sit there and go even the smallest win. I mean, I remember after the campfire getting to go up and seeing just the devastation, but seeing the animal NAVDAG, uh, North Valley Animal Disaster Group out there, and they were at a house. It's going to make me tear up. And this is because it's a small win and it sticks with me. Uh, and they were, had two cats that they were pulling out. And I just remember like doing that little clap thing, just being like, that person's animals are safe. They had to leave so quickly that they couldn't take something that I know if I had to leave my animals animals behind, it would kill me. And yet here's a small victory for that person. Their animals are safe. Those Those animals are safe. The owner knows their animals are safe. And I just go, it's a little win. Because if you don't find something good in all of this bad, it will just consume you. And, and I know people sit there and go, you know, oh, did that guy make it? You're like, I don't know. Like, oh, you don't care. You're so callous. Like if I hear one more person tell me I don't care about something, I might punch them because it goes, I can't care as much as I might for every single situation, because it, it almost killed me. It literally almost killed me doing that. And it's like, you know, people need to, we need to be considerate of that man.
0: (laughs) I remember one of my friends, she's actually now gone into nursing and then I think she's got her, uh, I think she's on the nurse practitioner route now. I mean, it's it's amazing, but she was, she was registered for nursing school. So she was, you know, interested and uh it was at crossfit gym she was a coach and i was a coach and she was and you know, i said oh we had another you know cardiac arrest last night and she goes did they make it and i was like fuck no and she the right. look on her face was like you callous bastard but the oh, back story yeah,
1: totally helps sarcastic yeah. comment yeah. I roll yeah
0: well <laughs> but the back story is i have never i've been a firefighter emt and a medic for 14 years i have never had a code save my last apartment had the highest percentage of code saves because it protected a theme park so they had the AEDs everywhere medics on scene so their code save you know was the highest in the country and I still never had a code I was just the reaper I was that dude that had the brain bleeds and the A's and the GI bleeds and you know all these horrendous things that that people just die for no reason I was the dude that they called and so it does you know and those small wins are so important whether it was a little girl who lacerated her forehead and you just put a Band-Aid on and you were kind to her and I gave her a couple of stitches in the ER and then you go away. Whether it's, I remember one house fire, you talk about animals. It wasn't that big of a fire. You know, some of the house was still intact. We went down, knocked it knocked it out, but she's like, where's my puppy? And so we were, you know, looking around. I remember clearly it was in the middle of a Florida rainstorm. So we were fighting fire with <laughs> lightning. And I was like, I'm going to find this fucking puppy come hell or high water. <laughs> so I went around and the end, I found it cowering you know behind some i think it was a bookshelf or something in in the back and just just like you said to give that person their puppy back and the smile on their face you know again kind of puts weight on the other side of that seesaw of all the trauma and all the loss and it does give you that i did something good today i made a difference today and you made a difference being there on the cardiac arrest you can't help that they didn't make it But like you said, those, those small victories, I couldn't agree more. They're so important.
1: When you you see that too, with a lot of like police and fire, you'll see it on like Facebook pages and Twitter pages and stuff where they go, Oh, you know, this woman got, was going to get arrested for shoplifting, but it was because she had no groceries. So the police officer bought her food and, or, Oh, these firefighters, you know, they had to take the, the husband in because he had a cardiac arrest, but they came back and, mowed the lawn because he was mowing the lawn in the middle of it. And, and you see these just very broken individuals saying, Oh, they're doing it for PR. It's just for PR. And I just sit there and go, you have no idea. Don't get me wrong. Maybe, maybe, maybe someone in there is doing it for some PR, but those people are doing that because they needed a win. They needed something good to come out of a woman who had no food and was shoplifting eggs because she had no way to feed her kids. They need good to come out of a man who, you know, this couple's been married for 50 years and he has a massive heart attack in the middle of mowing the lawn for his wife. And the wife is like, what am I going to do now? It's like, you need those wins and you need to see something good. Like you said, you need to see something good come out of it. Because otherwise your faith in humanity and the world would just crumble. And it already crumbles around you every day just through your normal job. Like someone seeing a vehicle accident and having to call 911, they're like, oh, my God, I had to call. Oh, it's, that's a huge deal. You're like, that's my every day. So you, we have such a skewed and different perspective of wins and losses and good and bad. And, and what we experience on a day-to-day basis would break. Normal people. I mean, I've seen it break therapists. I've seen it lead to them crying, and they have to fire you as a patient, and find someone else because they can't cope with your bullshit. And you're just like, "Cool, <laughs> what do I do now?" I've and heard just, that
0: before. You know, and what what a great way to put the final nail in the coffin and send someone to the wrong counselor,
1: right? And and my sister always says she's like. Christ, the least we could do as therapists is keep it together long enough to go, you know what you, why you are experiencing something I don't specialize in. Let me refer you to a therapist who can. She's like, but when you get someone who is on their last thread of hope, that they're finally seeking therapy because we all know as a, as a job classification therapy is not something we seek out first thing. It's usually mandated or like something real bad has happened that we're getting to that point. And then the therapist you go to as your last hope starts crying and is like, I can't handle this. You go, well, shit, if you can't, how am I supposed to, you know? And you just go, cool, 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 cool. So I am permanently broken and I can never be fixed because the person who's supposed to be able to fix me can't handle my crap.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Just
1: kind of like, you know, I try to tell my friends because I believe in therapy. It works. It has worked for me. It's just sometimes you EAP, especially it's throwing fucking darts at a dartboard and hoping it hits. And, and it is rare. You're going to hit a bullseye. And sometimes you have to try a couple times and it sucks. But, uh, when you get the good one, damn it, it's worth it. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I think that's
0: an important message. Don't give up. Don't don't go in expecting that to be the perfect one. And then now we're seeing a push where Red Lion Rescue and some of these other groups are giving us a list of culturally competent clinicians. So you're not playing Russian roulette. When you walk through, Ew. they know your terminology. They know your shifts. They know you know, not only the job, but hopefully they explore childhood trauma as well, you know, so so that they understand, you know, how to deal with us. Because I'm sorry, accountant and a firefighter are two very different individuals.
1: Well, and it's what you're seeing them for. Am I seeing you for, you know, uh, issues because of my kid? Am I dealing with like childhood issues not related to them? I mean, I see this, but at the same time, how is anything that we do not somehow related back to the department? Marriage and family issues are probably somehow related back to the job, but. At the end of the day, you need someone, like you said, knowing terms. When I first started seeing my therapist, love her to death. And I could say, oh, my, my BC, uh, that's a battalion chief. She's like, uh-huh. And she just kind of nodded at it at first. I'm like, yeah, so we had to send the strike team at Charlie's. And I'm like, so a strike team. And then Charlie, and she's like, she's like, Beth, I know what all of these terms are.
0: <laughs> but that's so important though.
1: And I'm like, it is, it's huge. It's huge for me to sit there. And because she... Being a smaller county in a smaller town, she sees so many of us. So I can talk about people. She knows them. So when I talk about my frustration with someone in management or a higher rank, she knows because she has heard 30 other people complain about the (laughs) same thing. And it just is so refreshing. And it ends up feeling more like you're talking to a friend for this, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy where you're just talking and offloading to a friend and you're not having it, but even more than a friend, because a lot of my friends weirdly are teachers and they don't understand, you know, when I'm describing work related stuff, you know, and their, you know, busy season is not my busy season. It's quite the reverse. And so it's, it's even more than just talking to a friend. It's someone who gets it, even though they haven't necessarily directly done it. And that's such a rare, rare thing. And it sucks that there are so few therapists that specialize in dealing with first responders because like you said you know an an accountant or a you know a, a typical nine to five job is just so different, so different not good bad or otherwise just different you know you don't go to a podiatrist if you're having a heart attack so <laughs> we have specialties for a reason <laughs>
0: <laughs> well speaking of Acute trauma then. So I want to get to the campfire. But before we do, you're a Paradise resident. So talk to me about the city of Paradise prior to this awful incident.
1: (laughs) When I was younger, growing up, Paradise, especially in Durham, Paradise seemed like it was forever away. It seemed so far away. It's in the mountains. It's, you know, it's so far to get there. It was like a 15-minute drive from my house. But... Um, because it just, it's another world compared to Valley ag residents. It's, it's in the timber line. And when I first moved there, I remember telling my dad, I would go outside at night on it. You know, those nights where it was hot during the day, but it's cooling off at night, right? Getting into the fall, the stars are out and there's a little breeze blowing. And I would always go outside and just take such a deep breath. And I remember if like my parents were visiting, I would look at my dad and I go, smells like camping, because that's what it, like, it smelled, like, it permanently was, like, camping. You know, it had that pine tree, just that nostalgic, comforting feeling of camping as a kid. That's what living up in paradise was for me. <laughs> like, that's, that's the best way I can equate it. Is that it was just, like, this cozy, quiet you're removed from the valley. It was always a little cooler. It just, it was, you know, and I, I'd grown up in a small town, so it was like, it was bigger than Durham small town, but it was still had that very small town. You know, I used to go to a sushi place. If you, the owners knew me, I'd go in, oh, hi Beth. Hi Momo. You know, you just, you, you knew people and you, it, 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 it reminded me of where I grew up. and It was just very nostalgic and hometown and small town and, and cozy and and camping just it smelled like camping.
0: Now, what about as far as fire preparation? So, for example, I live in Florida. So, you know, there's, you know, there's certain things that we're all cognizant of when it comes to hurricanes, and you know, I'm sure in the Midwest it's, it's tornadoes. So, you know, and this is the, none of this conversation is about pointing fingers or any of that stuff because that. Yeah, we leave that for the blame you know the blame game that all the media and everyone else likes to do but just you know from a community that is aware of potential dangers um you know what were the kind of uh kind of principles when it came to if you guys did get a fire in the vicinity
1: so speaking purely like it's hard for me to speak purely as like a resident because of all my fire background because so when i first started looking up there at houses. I had to, I had to go up there because Chico was too expensive. And we used to joke again, when I was younger, that paradise was the town of the the newlywed and the almost dead (laughs) because you lived up there because you had lived up there your entire life and you were retired or you lived up there because you were buying your first home because you couldn't afford Chico. And that was kind of what it was. You had really young families and couples or you had a lot of senior citizens who have lived up there forever and were retired. And when I realized I was going to ha- probably have to buy up there because I couldn't afford Chico or anything else, I told myself I had certain requirements because of the fear of fire. It is just such a given up on the ridge that I, even though I had never lived there at that point, I knew. And I said, I have to be on a big wide open road. I want preferably to be near a fire hydrant and a fire station. I want a flat lot. I have to be relatively, I have to be a couple rows of houses back from a canyon. I don't, I refuse to live on a canyon. And um, I don't want mass loads of trees around me. I don't want heavy fuel loading. And it drove, even though my parents, my dad, especially understood what the risk, uh, was on the Ridge, they were getting so annoyed with me (laughs) because it's very hard to find houses within those qualifications within my price range in paradise. But I knew, I said, I cannot knowing what I know about the fire danger. And especially in paradise, those are all bad things. And there was one house they wanted me to get. And I'm like, it's down a narrow road. There's no fire hydrant. There's these massive trees, like two feet away from the back door. There's a house across, like not even a house. It was like a single wide trailer across the street that had about four feet of pine needles on the roof. I'm like, that house will catch fire. And that's what will catch my house on fire. Like, I was just very strict about about it because growing up, it was always one of these days paradise is going to catch on fire. And the problem is, and was, I think that the belief was always that it would come up out of Butte Creek Canyon, that it wouldn't jump, like the idea of a fire burning and being able to jump the West branch blew people's minds, still blows people's minds because that wasn't the expected fire behavior and weather conditions to allow for that to happen was just unheard of. And so you had different expectations of what you would and wouldn't do depending on where the fire would come from. And I know that they had put in plant things in place like they had paved Upper Skyway. It used to be a gravel road for a long time to get up to, um, up out of Megalia and north of, of Megalia but they paved it as a fire preparation. Like this needs to be paved so that people can drive on it more quickly as a means of evacuation. And um, they had put in place evacuation zones. I knew which evacuation zone I was in. That was not terribly long before the campfire. Um, And I know I had done preparations for it, but I think that was because of my experience with the fire department. Like I knew, I'm not going to go anywhere near Skyway in the event of an evacuation. I wasn't over on that side of town. I knew I'm going to go out to the left down Pence and I'm going to go out highway 70. But I think that that day people did what they were familiar with because as much as it was in everybody's head that paradise will catch fire. One of these days, there was a lot of complacency that, Oh, it's, it, it won't happen to me. It'll be down the line. It'll be down the line. It'll be down the line. And so what people did was, well, I take Skyway to go into Chico. So I'm going to go over to Skyway and they're pat, you know, they, instead of going Skyway up, they're going Skyway down. And, and it just, it, because at the end of the day, humans are animals And we, you know, when bad things happen, our lizard brain takes over and it's, you know, fight, flight, freeze, or appease. And people took flight and they took flight in comfortable and familiar patterns. And you see animals do that. And they will herd themselves into bad situations because they just take flight and lizard brain takes over. And I I, I think just that day, that's ultimately what happened because complacency. Yeah. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, there's, there's so many factors too, as you said, whether it's, you know, unforeseen weather patterns driving, you know, winds that that are, you know, covering, what was it, seven and a half miles in, you know, 30 minutes or whatever it ended up being. Um, you know, there's, there's so many of the layers. And that's the thing. If you, you pick one and just say, oh, it's their fault, you know, then we're not painting the whole picture. So, November 8th, 2018, tell me about that day through your eyes.
1: Uh, I had worked a night shift. I, um, was a half hour away from going home. I remember it was right after the elections because I had been reading all night regarding a, a bill with AMR that had passed that pissed me off because it was just a way for AMR to avoid paying <laughs> their employees well. And I was just angry about that all night and on Facebook and And just like, uh, I remember my, one of my favorite podcasts had a new episode out. So I was like, I'm gonna listen to that on my way home. Super excited. And my partner, uh, had knee surgery that day. And so he had asked, Hey, is it cool if I cut out at like five 30 because I have knee surgery in the morning. And I told my captain, I said, you know, I'm good. I've worked by myself so many times, um, I'm pretty good at multitasking. I said, just come over your normal time. Don't come over early. He'll leave at five 30. You come over at like six 30. No big deal. And he came over super early. Cause that's what he does. And he, I remember he pulled up, we have a wind map that, I mean, the public can access it too. He pulled it up and he's like, Oh, the winds have calmed down because they were actually stronger the day before the day before the winds had actually been blowing harder through the Jarbo area. And, but he had kind of made a comment about how the winds had died down and, uh, we got, he took the 911 call from, uh, the PGE employee. And I remember walking over cause I could kind of hear one side of the conversation. He was very, very lackadaisical about it. It's like, oh, okay, so it's here and where are you reporting? Da, da, da. And so we're looking at the map cause it was a third hand report. The guy who was reporting it, if I recall, wasn't actually seeing, the fire someone else had called him to tell him about it and so we're trying to because of where that is with our CAD system you put in an address or a street with a cross street and where this is there's no cross streets and there's no addresses so we're trying to see okay you're here you're looking this way let's try to get a general latitude and longitude where could this be off of how can they access this and we got a latitude and longitude that put it off camp creek road and I'm going to dispatch and I literally, I'm just like, oh, da, 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 da. it's November for Christ's sake. Like we don't get big fires in November in Northern California. And I'm just like, okay, we're just going to have a little fire here. Not a big deal. Um, and he, but I remember my like captain Marcus going, oh, okay, but sub out those type one engines for type threes. Cause they're not going to be able to get down camp Creek road and type ones. I'm like, OK, so, you know, as a command center versus a dispatch center, that's what we can do. We don't have to send the recommended dispatch. We could send more. We could send less. We could sub engines out. And that's what we did. Because And it made absolute sense, especially now that I've had a chance to see what Camp Creek Road looks like. And I said, hey, and I remember it's so vividly in my head as I'm like naming the incident and, and setting the tap frequency. He so say, hey, you good with camp incident? He goes, yeah, yeah, sounds good. And I had no idea what I had no idea what can of worms I was opening because, you know, especially in regards to the name for us, it's incident. It's not the fire. It's, it's the camp incident. It's the Creek incident. It's the Dixie incident and it's the public and the media that turns it into the fire. And it. You know, we we kind of also jokingly say when you're naming an incident, think of the shirt. <laughs> when, you, when you've got it, someone's making the shirt design like, ooh, we want to give it a good name. We don't want to give it a lame name. And, and I just was like, this isn't a big deal. This fire is a nothing fire. It's November. It's the camp incident, whatever. And oh my God, I <laughs> opened a can of worms with that. That oh, I didn't realize till about, 24 hours later when i'm like on hour 30 of my shift and of being awake and i see the news and i'm like oh it's the campfire well that's kind of oh god what did i do just in this like (laughs) restless delirium just like oh crap
0: now when you said pg and e just for people listening so that was the uh, power company whose electrical lines arced and started the fire in the first place
1: Yes. So PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, they were the first and really for a long time, the only RP, what we call RP reporting person on the fire. And it was a third hand report in the area across from Camp Creek uh, is the Poe. I'm brain farting now because I'm not looking at the map. It's either the Poe Powerhouse or the Poe Dam. They're two different things. But um, and it was employees at that that called in the fire. And, uh, I don't know that they were, they, I'm going to say at the time, they probably didn't know what was the cause. They just happened to be, it's such a remote area. There's nothing out there that they're probably the only thing within any distance that would have seen it to begin with. So that's why they ended up being the first ones to report it. Um, because it, it's such a remote, remote area.
0: So at that time, you know, The people in paradise, they weren't threatened at all. So walk me through initially appeasing fears of people in paradise and then how that got flipped when, you know, the weather changed and obviously the fire took off.
1: So there wasn't any appeasing because they didn't know about it at first. No one knew. The first calls that we had to deal with was Konkow because Polga was first threatened and then Konkow was threatened immediately and I was on the radio for the first hour, hour, 6 30, 7 30, about hour and a half, two hours before I had to leave to evacuate my house. And when I came back from that, I was on 911 calls. Um, and so we the first initial concern was from the reports given by the firefighters, not by any 911 calls. And you know the first report was it's in that it was in the manicured grass underneath the power lines because you know under high tension power lines they cut back all the brush and they they um mow the grass back as a a means of excuse me it's a means of like fire prevention but also you don't want any of that stuff growing up and becoming a hazard to the high tension lines and it went from you know no big deal but as soon as it gets out of this it's going to be a major incident it's 200 acres and i'm just like oh crap But it wasn't occurring to me the threat to uh, residential areas yet. I was thinking strictly the fire danger. And we started getting calls from people in Concow. Um, And even then, I think it was the firefighters telling me. I remember one of our safety officers, I think, or someone on an engine telling me that, they were in Concow and there were houses on fire. So it wasn't even the 911 calls like that were an issue. Everything we were hearing was from the fire personnel and we were reporting then to, you know, BCSO and PPD about evacuations. And uh, it was all related to Polga and Concow. And then all of a sudden someone in the background said there's a structure on fire in paradise on sawmill sawmill road which is kind of interior paradise it's between the fire it it was on the other side like my house the fire's on one side and and this house on fire in paradise is on the other and I'm like and I'm thinking oh we have a structure fire in paradise on top of this vegetation fire oh fuck we have no resources to send to this okay, we got to muster together a structure fire response. And I'm immediately in my head going, okay, what do we have to send to a structure fire in paradise? And they go, no, it's from this fire. It's from the camp. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, that's impossible. And they're like, yes, it's from it's from the camp incident. And I'm like, you're, in my head, I'm just like, full of shit. That's not possible. Because I had my head wrapped around Pulga and Concow. It was so far removed to me from paradise. And I just went, absolutely not. And I was like adamant and kind of angry about it. And we told the IC like, hey, this, we're getting reports of a structure fire, this address in paradise from this incident. And I think their reaction was kind of very similar, like from this. And that's when it shifted. And that was when we started getting more nine one one calls. Like it overtook us, and and I I don't think anybody saw that happening because it happened so quickly.
0: I was in uh, just going to a car fire. In it was you know was kind of came out as a, a brush fire, and we, we we responded from our you know very. Suburban, I guess you'd say, department went there, and and there was a there was a couple of you know spot fires. There was a burning car, so you know, obviously it was an arson job or something. But even though it was kind of weird, because there were some other hot spots that weren't right by the car, but still, you know, no wind whatsoever. We're good, you know, we're 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 in first gear, you know, nothing to worry about. And then a thunderhead rolled in out of nowhere, and it went from we're just chilling, you know, let's just get some you know, make sure it's not going to extend. Let's clear the brush around it. You know, we don't have a lot of water because we have to all the way down this dirt track um, to, oh, shit, it's flanking us. And, you know, we turned the vehicles around. The BC came down, got his freaking vehicle stuck, almost cut us off. So we told him to get his ass out and jump in ours. We (laughs) we hauled our ass back. I'm sure a lot of people know BCs like that. But anyway, um, (laughs) and, and then the same Thunderhead dumped a shitload of water on it and finally it went out. But I don't have a lot of wildfire experience, but just that one incident showed me how you know you're literally looking at a picture like okay here's where we're at you know everything's good and the weather can change and now you're going from we're fine we're just going to wait for this burn burn itself out to literally running for your lives or we're going to get burnt over so Talk to me about the changing conditions from the wind being less than the night before to, to, you know, what drove that fire so far in a direction that no one anticipated.
1: You know, that's getting kind of into an area I don't have a ton of information and experience on and I don't want to speak from an uninformed standpoint. Um, I know a lot about what happened out there that day because of people who were out there. Um, and because of what, you know, putting the pieces together from what I was dealing with personally in the ECC, but it, you know, Sean Norman said it in the documentary. It was just, it was at the time it was considered unprecedented that the, a fire could burn that quickly that it could jump the West branch for anybody who's familiar with the area, it's the West branch of the, the, of Lake Orville, um, that it could, the embers, the ember cast from the fire um, could create these spot fires and spots so far ahead of the main body of the fire. It was all just, we. I don't think any of us had experienced that before. It was a complete change. And, and, you know, you know, from your experience that in firefighting, you have set tactics, you have SOGs, you have SOPs, you have policy, you know, I pull up to a vehicle fire, I pull, you know, this size hose, I pump up to this size you know, this, this high PSI, you know, I go, these are my boxes that I tick because 90% of vehicle fires are like this. And then all of a sudden you're encountering one, like what you just went through, you know, described, and, and it's so different than what you're used to. You go, holy crap, what do I do now? And this was that on a, an extreme level because it went from not just, is this a fire, but it's also a massive evacuation. And then it becomes life-saving. And then you tell firefighters, stop trying to put out the fire and just save lives. And you're like, that is not normal for us. It's like, that is not what we do. And, and it just, I think it put everybody in a position of you, you know, we train, 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 train all day long, nothing, literally nothing except for knowing the conditions as they would have been. And know like having a crystal ball and seeing it and having been able to stage like 3000 fire engines in paradise that the night before nothing would have stopped it from doing what it did. And that's the thing that you have to like come to terms with over time is to say nothing would have stopped that from happening the way it did at all, ever. No, no training, no predictive models, no, nothing.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's a, such an important point. Um, you know, a lot of people struggle with the inability to save and you, you have to, as one of my guests said, stop thinking you're God, you know, you were there and you did the best that you could, but you don't decide who live or dies. Um, now, there was some incredible heroism. There's two two documentaries out there. Um, one front line seems a little bit more kind of accusatory. And then the other one, which I really liked that featured you, was the Netflix one, both called Fire in Paradise. Um, and the the one that you were in really details some of the heroism, some of the teacher's um evacuating the schools. Some of the incredible people that evacuate the hospitals. So, talk to me about some of those. You know, maybe through through the dispatchers' lens, what you heard and the the risks that some of these men and women took to protect the residents of Paradise.
1: You know, you kind of touched on it earlier that you know, with hindsight being twenty twenty, and wanting to put the blame on people because as humans, we we need someone to blame, and you can't blame weather. You know, you can't sue weather and you can't sue circumstances. And, and so in the fallout of this, people find, you know, some people find ways to try to blame the fire department, say they didn't fly aircraft or they didn't try hard enough, or they just wanted to see paradise burn. And I don't think anything hurts my heart more than those comments, because personally knowing the people who responded to this fire and knowing the things that they did and And seeing the after effect of how it has affected them, I can say with 100% certainty that everybody who responded to that fire gave everything they were capable of giving of themselves that day. And that they risked everything to help and to save and to shelter, and to protect, because that is who they are as people, that is who they are as fire department employees, and because of the fact that that is their town. We had so many people whose houses were burning and whose own family members were trying to evacuate while they were protecting other people's families. And we have so many people who grew up in paradise, went to school in paradise. Their children were born at the Feather River Hospital. Their their spouses taught at the schools there. This was their home. And so when I hear people say that we didn't try hard enough or we didn't do enough it it really it doesn't just make me angry it hurts my heart because I just sit there and go these people gave everything and they are still giving because it is still with them. And so I I have never been prouder to be a member of this department but also so sad because seeing the aftermath of them, you know, the retirements and the transfers out because they can't be around it anymore or, you know, the medical leaves because they're not dealing so well with the fallout. You know, it, it, they're amazing people who deserve so much more than they, they have gotten and, or are being given more than anybody could ever get them. Um, I, and, and that, and that goes, you know, like you said, the teachers, uh, Mary Ludwig, you know, I am so fortunate to have had the chance to meet her because her story in that Netflix documentary, just absolutely. Sometimes I have to skip over it when I watch it because it breaks my heart because, you know, and she got crap for that. She got crap from the public because she said, you know, we, we said, what is the quickest way that we can die? Because you think, and I just sit there and go, don't you dare. You have never been in that situation where you think we are going to die. What is the most like humane thing we can do? Let's at least hope we die quickly. You know, these are two women who volunteered to save other people's children to to help guide them out and and we're in hell literal physical hell and and for them to get hate for that kills me kills me you know um people did amazing things that day and i i kind of gotten off track because (laughs) it uh
0: no, you, you stay right know. on track. I was asking about exactly that, you know, and I think as you pointed out, and yourself is in this this category. There are numerous people, whether it was volunteer firefighters, whether it was the police officers, whether it was the dispatchers, whose homes were burning up, whose family were trying to drive through a wall of fire. As you said, they're responding to help complete strangers, whether they knew them from town, whether they didn't know them, whether they're from other agencies. And you see the footage, you know, the police officers driving through a wall of fire trying to get out. I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's unprecedented is a word that used a lot, but it is. I mean, they were literally in Hades when you look at that. And, and the heroism from the citizens, from the responders, from the dispatchers, if people haven't seen that one and then the rebuilding paradise, the one, you know, the aftermath one, they're so important to see before you open your fucking mouth, having a, an opinion on this whole thing. So, um,
1: and it, and it, and it was everybody you said, I mean, people can be pretty terrible sometimes. <laughs> We're pretty awful sometimes, but my God, in this tragedy, the most amazing, just Heroic. I mean, you—the nurses evacuating patients, the—the, the, you know, the, uh, everything you know, fire department and police did and stuff. But then you have things like you know the school, the school employees evacuating students. You have, you have the, um, the guy who was the the garbage that he dro- was the garbage man who helped evacuate one of the elderly citizens that he knew was on her own, drives this trash truck into hell to evacuate this little old lady because he knows no one else is going to get her out. And you just go, you know, we can be pretty terrible to each other, but God, when we need it, we can be pretty fucking amazing to each other too. And it just, it just warms my cold, dead heart.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's so important to hear that though, because I believe that people are inherently good. But when the influence is constantly negative, which we're in this toxic environment, you know, the last few years, so don't, it's not coming from any political leaning. I equally despise both sides. Let me be clear with that. <laughs> but, you know, th- we've allowed, they've allowed this culture, this toxicity, this division to paint humans as these nasty, selfish, prejudiced, you know, scumbags. When I call bullshit, those people exist. But they're the minority, but we give them the fucking microphone all the time. Oh, yes. I they're think the, the loudest. Yeah, That's the problem. The middle 80% or 85 whatever it is, are good people. Sometimes they just need leadership. Sometimes they just need to be told, hey, here's the thing. Go do that thing. So, you know, I think that you're right. I think you got to see humanity. I think nine twelve, we got to see humanity, you know, and these are the things that get lost. So, you know, it's, it's so important. But you talked well, I about... Think too, no, I think,
1: too, sometimes it's the apathy and the indifference. I think you have, you know, 85% of people who are inherently good people, but we fall into this hole of apathy and indifference. And I think it takes sometimes large scale tragedies to make us realize you can make a difference. You know, I had friends who, you know, went to Walmart and target and bought underwear and socks and food and took it to, you know, the, the refugee camp that kind of sprang up in the Walmart parking lot. And they're like, it's not much. And I said to someone who has lost everything that is the world. And you just think like we sit there and think we can't do anything to make a difference. Nothing we do will matter, but it matters to someone. Like I, um, I had no clothes. <laughs> I evacuated and uh, I was able to evacuate. And my dad, you know, met me up at my house to help me evacuate. And I was so frazzled and was so, I felt so shitty that i left work anyway. I just grabbed the clothes that were in my dryer and the clothes that were on my couch. And those were summer clothes. And literally a week later it was winter and I had no winter clothes and I had friends like Venmoing me money. And I, just here, here's something. And I, I was donating that money to the Humane Society and to NAVDAG because I'm a bleeding heart for animals. And I'm like, I, my house did sort of make it. And I had a place to evacuate to. I was able to go to my parents' house. I said, compared to some, I am so lucky. I don't deserve any of this. And my mom goes, Beth, you don't have a coat. (laughs) You don't have winter clothes. You are like, you have a couple of uniforms and you have shorts and t-shirts and it's raining outside. And I just went, well, shit. Okay. Yeah. And so (laughs) I, you know, took some of that money and I went to target and I got myself some sweatshirts and stuff, but it was just like, you think something you're like, no, no, no. Like I, I can't do enough to make a difference, but in situations like this, the smallest thing I mean, I remember I was at I was at Italian Cottage. It's a restaurant in Chico with my mom and dad like two days after the fire. I don't know. And I was dealing with the insurance company who, you know, and they're basically telling me I couldn't live in my parents' house and give them some kind of reimbursement rent that was covered by insurance because, you know, it would screw up their homeowners and all this rigmarole basically. And I'm like, so I could have been a total D-bag the day of the fire and booked a hotel room, which you would have reimbursed me for as an insurance company. But I sit there and go, no, I have a home. I have my parents' house I can evacuate to. So I'm gonna do that and leave the hotels for people who desperately need it. But now you're saying I can't reimburse my parents for their electricity. And you know, I can't give them something that insurance will reimburse me for because I did the right thing and I'm in Italian cottage and I'm on the phone, like yelling this at them. And I'm like, it was just one of those things that probably wouldn't have been as big a deal, but because it was the, everything was the end of the world. I remember just breaking down and my mom's like, let's get this to go. And they're boxing up all the food. And my mom saw my breakdown coming and I'm like, and I'm like, I try to do the right thing and nothing is working. And I'm starting to sob in Italian cottage. And I walk. we walk out and this woman follows me. And at first I thought she was gonna get mad at me because I was making a fuss. And, and she just, she taps me and she goes, did you have to evacuate paradise too? And I just went, yes, and just starts sobbing. It's gonna make me cry now too. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And she just gives me the biggest hug, this tiny little woman, I don't know her name. And she just gave me this hug. And she just told me we're going to get through this and it will be okay. And I just remember thinking like how much that meant to me in that moment. And you just think we always have the ability to positively affect other people. Even if we think we can't, even if you think I can't do anything, I as one person can't do anything to change the situation. There's always something that, that we can do, even if it's something small as in that woman 's case that day, a hug it we can do something we are not powerless
0: absolutely
1: no well,
0: yeah. I'm sorry to 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 bring that emotion from you, <laughs> but so, I just want to get on one thing and then talk about the journey out for you because obviously, you know as you said, you know you've got a long career in dispatch you've got the other calls that we touched on, you know which are just you know picking out a couple of all the ones. But a very, very obvious element when in both those documentaries, when it was a dispatcher's talking, it was, again, the inability to save. And some of those people perished. 86 people died in that fire and tens of thousands of homes were were lost. So, you know, not trying to, to drag you down any specific trauma, but just so to paint the picture for people. Yeah, you know, what was that element like for the dispatch center and whole it, as a whole? Knowing that these fire departments and police officers and everyone else that was trying to help can't get to some of these more remote houses and the people on the phone you know are not gonna make it through this fire.
1: If you're a human with any sense of feeling and emotion, it is the worst most helpless feeling you can ever imagine. It is... I I literally cannot put into words how it feels when you have people, you know, I had a woman calling from the Bay Area because she had family in paradise and she's asking, can I pay to hire a private helicopter to drop water on my family's house? You know, people we, we bargaining and anger. And, I mean, it's like it's like the five stages of grief, but in with the fire. You know, just people blaming you. Like, you know, they're calling. Oh, the f- we're in the evacuation traffic, and and the flames are right outside our door. What do we do? And it's like if you have to get out and run. Oh, that's all you have for us. Like, because they're scared. Anger never comes from anger. Comes from other emotions anger is the result of other things. And it was fear, but it's hard in that moment when you're to to be, you know, irrational, like, I understand you're scared. And that's why you're angry. You're like, I'm angry too. I'm scared too. I want to help you. Like, you're like, I can't do that on a 911 call. You just feel just cuffed. Like you're just handcuffed and you can do nothing. Everything you have been trained to do, everything you've been taught to do, everything that has, you know, maybe in the past successfully worked for you. None of that applies. You are taking call after call after call. And you just have to, you know, you can't even, I don't lie to callers anyway. I think that's a, a bullshit tactic. I, I can't even say help will come for you. I have to tell people there is no help to come. You have to get out on your own, you know, and when people are suffering like that, it, and, and, You know, they're your figurative and literal neighbors. I, you know, I talk about it in the, I don't know if it got in the documentary. I took a 911 call from my neighbor across the street. She was elderly. She lived on her own. She had dementia. She had no vehicle. Her car had been towed for driving on a suspended license. And she called 911 and she died in her house because she, she, Didn't know how she was too scared to leave. And I had to tell her, I literally had 30 seconds to just say, Sarah, she had no idea it was me. I knew it was her. She was a frequent flyer with our department. And I just had to say, Sarah, you have to get out. You have to run, put on shoes and just run. You might see a fire engine. You might see a car, but at the very least, you might be able to run to a clearing, but you need to go. And she didn't and uh they found her in her bathtub and uh and you just think you know you and we've said it before it's like you know logically logically i know there was nothing that could have changed that scenario nothing i did could have changed that scenario it, it, given the situation the circumstances everything i did was what i could have done and should have done and yet it still haunts me this idea that I could have saved her. You know, you feel that way with cases. Like I could have done more. I could have been done harder. I could have done faster. I could have done this. I could have done that. I could have saved them. And I feel that way about all the calls I took in paradise that way. And I remember this stupid meme on Facebook from this one dispatcher page. I follow, and it's still saved on my phone. And I remember sending it to my sister where it was like, have you seen that Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's toasting from the great Gatsby? Yes. Yes. Um, but it basically said like, uh, I kept them all alive, your turn. And it was, uh, it was like, you know, Oh, passed down from night shift to day shift. Ha ha ha. And it's just supposed to be this funny meme. And I saw that. And I just remember I broke down crying and I texted my sister. I wasn't sleeping. It was like three in the morning. And I was like, but I didn't, I didn't keep them all alive. I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep a lot of them alive. And at the time we didn't know how many people I'm like, there were so many that were missing. And I'm like, I don't know how many I killed because I couldn't save them. And it's been years of therapy and, you know, awareness and work for me to even get to the realization Though there will always be that seed in my heart saying otherwise, that there wasn't anything different that any of us could have done but it's because you want to have saved them and you want to have helped them because that is your job. And you sit there and go, I have one job, you have one job. <laughs> and you just felt like you couldn't do it that day.
0: Now with that. So, you know, obviously the, the, the fire, the, the acute fire is happening day one. It burns for weeks after that. Then you have, you know, the overhaul where all these crews are going back and, you know, identifying corpses, you know, burned up skeletons, basically. Um, at what point for you did you hit that that mental wall where you realized that you actually needed to start getting help, you know, and actually, you know, officially seek out um, more aggressive help than maybe some preventative stuff that you've been doing prior?
1: It was a surprisingly long process. And I actually um, owe oh, the beginning of it kicking off to one of my former captains, Josh Baker. Um, he... It was relatively soon after the fire. I worked, fires on a Thursday. I worked Wednesday night, all of Thursday, Thursday night, and they finally kicked me out and made me leave Friday morning because I hadn't slept 36 hours. And I had to go to my parents' house. And my mom was, uh, down in San Diego. My sister had just had a baby. So my mom was down with her. My dad was out of town after he helped me evacuate. And so I was there by myself and I just felt so stupid and pointless. I was like begging them, please let me come back after I tried to sleep for a little while. Like, please let me come back and just help. And so I was kind of going in for some part days on my days off and going back to my parents' house and not sleeping. And my captain Josh, he, um, he texted me something and I like in the middle of the night, cause he was assigned to the fire and I replied and he's like, Oh, I didn't hear you. Are you working in the ECC? I said, no. And he's like, why are you up? And I said, don't really sleep, Josh. And he goes, Oh, Beth, that's not good. And he knew a couple people that were on the peer support team at the incident, which this was a huge first. That we had a peer support deployment on the incident that had department personnel, but also actual like licensed clinicians and therapy dogs. Um, it was a huge first and kudos to them for realizing how important that was. And he said, Hey, would you meet with my friend? Um, or would it be okay if I gave him your number? And I said, yeah, fine, whatever. And he texted me the next day and was like, Hey, you know, why don't we just meet? Let's go get, let's go get, you know, food. Where do let's go to in and out you know? And, and I'm like, whatever. I wasn't eating very stereotypical. And so they got, he was there and, um, man, Manny, I believe, but also a woman from Sac Metro who recently passed away from cancer, Tammy Thatcher. And, and I remember she wasn't hit my captain's friend, but she is the one that I will always remember because she cared so deeply for someone she had never met who worked for a completely different department. And she just had this personality that was all encompassing just this big smile, this loud laugh, this big, bright like, if a ray of sunshine could be in a person, that was Tammy. And she's calling me sister, you know, Hey sister, you know, and, and, you know, they ordered food and I'm not eating it. And and she's like, <laughs> kind of cracked me up. Cause she treated it like an intervention. She's like, Hey, why don't we just take you back to the fairgrounds where the base camp is? And just have you talk to one of the counselors there? No big deal. And I'm like, okay, well, my car's over there. She's like, let me take you in my truck. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, I got you on the hook, so I'm not going to let you go.
0: (laughs) Hold this burger.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And I just, she got me laughing about just the most mundane. It was fire department bullshit. But it was something that you could laugh at. It's that morbid, dark humor, you know, when they see people laughing in really shitty situations. And like you said, people call you callous. But it's like that was my first steps of coping with it or trying to cope with it. And I talked to a therapist at base camp named Kay and she had her golden doodle. And I mean, man, you want to get through to police and fire, have pets there, have, you know, dogs where, you know, you can just like, literally at one point I was sitting on the floor, just bear hugging this dog while I'm crying, talking to Kay, because like, you know, it's okay to do that with an animal. That's not the same therapy. That's not being soft or weak. You're loving on an animal, you know? And she, I was able to talk to her and she said, okay, well, why don't you come back in a couple of days? And I met with her two or three times. And I remember one time when I was going for an appointment at base camp, they were getting out of like evening briefing and they had this herd of golden retriever therapy dogs they would they would just walk through at briefing and like cuz these were the people who were uncovering corpses and digging for bones and bodies and my god the the spirit killer that that had to have been and so they had these all these golden retrievers because god what makes your heart happier golden retrievers are the happiest dogs in the world so you know and i just remember at one point like laying on my back on the grass in the gross fairgrounds just they just let these dogs like cuddle puddle on me. They're like puppies. (laughs) And I remember being so happy at that. And like, when I talked to Kay and she was like, you know, it was getting towards the end. They were going to start kind of closing up peer support. And she's like, well, we have a therapist here who works at a Chico specializes in first responders. Let's see if we can get you on her schedule. And I started seeing my therapist, Katie at that point. And it, you know, it was huge, I think, for me to get in in those early stages, because I think it was before I built a wall, I was still pretty mushy and pliable. And I think that if I had tried to get involved with that later, or I, you know, flubbed and got a shitty therapist, I would have been less receptive to it. So it it just all the pieces kind of aligned and came together to allow me to get to where I could have a recurring and regular appointments with Katie and get into therapy that quickly after the incident. I was very fortunate in that.
0: Now what ended up being, well, what which tools ended up being valuable? You mentioned the MDR. So I'm assuming you probably found the, uh, you know, success with that, but, but, when you look at all the elements of the the journey that you talk, took through counseling and maybe any other things, you know, what, what were the, some of the the things that stick out that really helped you, you know, work through that trauma and get back to where you are now, which is back in the dispatch center again.
1: I mean, I think the biggest thing, and this was more of a hindsight was kind of realizing that trauma, there is no timeline to when it's over. You know, I, I would, be in my car driving and I would see signs. Oh, thank you. First responders. And they were still up, you know, quite some time later. And I would have to pull over because I would just break down crying in my car, you know, or I would, I would be laying in bed because nighttime always seemed like it was the worst. I'd be trying to go to sleep and I would just start crying. And I just kept going, when is it over? When cool? You've hit your year mark. You're good now. Like, when do you get better? And I just kept like blaming myself and thinking like you, you are failing because you're not doing better. And my sister, it kind of cracked me up (laughs) that she said this because not long after the fire, obviously it's Thanksgiving. And I went down to my sister's house for Thanksgiving with my family. I wasn't sleeping still. And she, I was having a lot of uh, nightmares. I would hallucinate the smell of smoke. Like I kept walking around my parents' house at night thinking that it was on fire because I would like think I would just, I would kind of start to doze and I would smell smoke and be like, oh my God, it's on fire. There's fire. Like, and I would have these horrible nightmares about burned dead people. And, um, my sister pulled me aside one day and she took me into a room and she goes, a precursor to EMDR is EMD. Um, Where you're not trying to reprocess it, you're. It's just processing it, like you're currently going through the trauma. And she pulled me aside and she goes, "I am not supposed to do this." And she told me year, like a year later, she felt so bad. She's like, "I was afraid, like I did something bad doing this." And she did EMD on me. And I told her, and I'm like, "I'm not doing this right. Like this is stupid. Like I'm not." What are the rules and how do I do it? And I need to do it right. Because we're all type A, especially in dispatch. And she's like, and she kind of laughs and she goes, Why do all my police and fire people do that? You all think you're doing it wrong. Like, I need a set of rules so I can do it right. And and it's like, just go with it. That's how you do it right. There's nothing you can do wrong here. And I just remember like, this is stupid. I can't do it right. And but I remember that night being the first night I slept like really slept because of that. And that sold it for me. Like that sold anything that therapy could offer for me because it meant sleep, which I have learned since then sleep is how I sleep is such a huge thing for me. It determines my happiness. It determines my productivity. It determines my health. Like so much for me is tied to sleep. And I just remember my sister telling me later, she goes, I thought that I really screwed up by doing that. And I said, Miranda, I can't thank you enough that you did it because it was the first droplet of peace that I felt. And uh, she like teared up and got really emotional and I felt so bad. I was like, I thought you knew that. And she's like, I never knew that. I was like, I'm so sorry. And, um, And yeah, and also like, I think realizing that there are false starts. You know, I I had a, another coworker Miguel um who was one of the first engines on the campfire and he transferred out of the unit because he couldn't I mean he grew up in paradise and and it broke my heart seeing him leave, but I think he had a big heart for fellow first responders who are still trying to survive it and he I think had heard that I was really struggling And he got me very last minute into a PTSD retreat in Boise, Idaho. And like, God, I remember the night before I was supposed to leave the preview for the Netflix documentary came out on Facebook or came out and someone shared it and tagged me on Facebook. And I remember like sitting in my office, like rocking back and forth, sobbing, watching this preview for the documentary and just being like I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, and being like, I can't go, I'm not gonna go. And like they were texting me the whole time, like, hey, are you on the road? Okay, are you at the airport? Okay, like following like again, because like thinking I was gonna dip out and I really wanted to. And I remembered feeling so good after the retreat and thinking like that was what I needed. Like that was the the step that I needed to take. And then I backtracked. I just slid back. And I think that was in October. So that was right before the one year anniversary. And then last February, I I had a suicide attempt. And I didn't know what to do. I was like, and I didn't realize it. It all went back to the fire, but I felt like, okay, I had the PTSD retreat. I should be good now. I can't backslide. No, like that's a failure. Failure is not allowed. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. And I remember like I was showing up to work, like I hadn't bathed. I wasn't wearing makeup. I wasn't eating. I wasn't taking care of myself. I would sit at my desk and cry. And no one said anything because I think it makes you uncomfortable. Like, you know, the fire department is a very social, very small talk, chatty, chitty, get along. Everything's great, sociable thing. And I think to see someone in the middle of this, you know, kind of causing a disruption to the flow, it makes people very uncomfortable to deal with emotion. And so no one said anything. No one asked if I was okay. No one, nothing. And none of the people for the most part that I was working with at the time had been there during the campfire. So I don't think they totally understood. And I mean, this was, at this point, I was, you know, 13 years into a dispatch career after that fire and personal traumas and, and all that stuff. And and it just, it, it overwhelmed me. And i just i hit like a literal rock bottom for me and i had a an, an attempted suicide and failed obviously and uh i remember calling my sister and just being like miranda i don't know what to do and she's like call because i had stopped seeing my therapist for a while and that had contributed contributed to it because i thought it was like a weird mix of i'm too fucked up for her to help or I'm not fucked up enough and I'm a waste of her time. It was any excuse that I could give to say, I am not worth it. I am not worth help or getting better. And she's like, you need to schedule an appointment with your therapist. And she talked to me and that got me through the night and that, you know, I had another coworker. He's like my best friend reach out to. And it just kind of made me realize, okay, the people I work with every day aren't seeing it, or maybe are too uncomfortable to say anything, but these other people who I didn't think I mattered to are reaching out and saying, are you okay? And you just sit there and go, okay, it was enough. Again, it was just enough of a drop of hope to get you through the next day to get me in to see my therapist. And she just, I said, I don't know what to do, Katie. I don't know how to make this better. Nothing I'm doing is helping. And she said, stop going to work. And I'm like, that's not an option. Again, quitting is not an option. Failure is not an option. I have to have my paycheck. She's like, Beth, I sign a form and you're on medical leave from work. And I'm like, what? Like literally in my head, the idea of killing myself was more of an out, more of a a reasonable, because my head was so fucked up, was more of a reasonable out than going on medical leave. Like I didn't even realize that was an option because again, we're not taught that we're not taught. If you are reaching the end of your rope, don't cut that rope, take medical leave. And, and so I went, it, that it can't be, that can't be it. And she goes, yeah. And that was my She signed it that day and I didn't go back to work. And I was horrified at having, I had to call someone at work to do the paperwork on that end. And I was horrified because I'm like, they're all going to hate me. They're going to be pissed at me because I'm contributing to short, already short staffing. They're going to think I'm lying. They're going to think I'm abusing the system. You know, I just was so wrapped up in being a burden on other people that I just thought I, this isn't going to help. This is going to make it worse. And, uh, I don't remember a whole lot of March, (laughs) the first month I was off after I, I just remember I was sick the whole month because like my body started to decompress. And so I had a flu, I had a cold, I like literally back to back. I had like just a chronic, like fatigue and inflammation that my doctor's like, don't know what that is going to go with stress. Um, And I, I remember I didn't move like, you know, my, I think my watch for step count for a day would say like 300 for a whole day because I just basically laid on my couch and didn't function because I was so broken. It's like, you needed to just lay there and let everything stitch back together just so you could start the process of healing. So yeah it was a lot
0: yeah but that's so so important and it and it underlines a couple of things, firstly, as you said, the brain being broken, you know the the everyone that's been on here that's attempted or even actually you know it was going to or actually attempted suicide, and thank goodness, just like your your case, it wasn't successful, but it is that feeling of burden, it is that feeling of you know the world would be better off without me, and you know, it is the I want the pain to end but as you said, just like Kevin Hines before he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, he was in tears and someone asked him, hey, can you take a picture of me and my, whoever was with him? And then they walked off, you know? And he said, if they had just seen me, if they had just asked if I was okay, I would never have jumped. And that's what's so important for us that are doing okay. For us that, that are struggling, it's so important that we ask for help. For us that are doing okay, It's so fucking important that we look around and not just say, hey, you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. No, are you really all right? And understand if someone's angry, if someone who's normally social is now, you know, spending time in the bunk room the whole time, whatever it is, that we're looking out for them. Because if we miss that, if your friends had not reached out to you, we might not be having this conversation right now.
1: And and that, like you said, it is, and that's what I remember telling my friend Thomas is like, I felt... Invisible. Being in dispatch to begin with, you feel invisible because you are in a room that no one ever comes to visit because oh God, we don't want to go in there. We have to put our uniform shirt on and we don't want to do that. Or oh, it's scary, the dispatchers are scary, or or whatever. It's at the headquarters building, we don't have to do that. So people don't even know what you look like to begin with. Maybe they know your name, maybe they don't, you know, and and you already feel invisible in your job. And then you throw into that feeling invisible within your job where I felt like I was standing in the middle of a room screaming and people are just walking around me doing their business. And I'm just, you just go, it wouldn't matter if I killed him. I said the only reason anybody would notice that I had killed myself is because I didn't show up for my shift because I had created an inconvenience. And it was just that feeling of, and, and it was a continuation from the fire of I don't matter. Nothing I do matters. Nothing I do counts for anything. It doesn't help anybody. I don't provide any worth to the world. And, and so it's okay for me to just disappear. And it's to say it sucks is to put it lightly, but I, I teach at our ECC Academy now. I'm on one of the cadres, and I try to tell this story to some degree at every academy to say you are getting into something if you're new to dispatch or, or you are transitioning into something. If you're new to the fire department, that takes such a toll on you. And I am telling you, It will that you will have days where you're in the bathroom crying because someone screamed at you on a 911 call, or you couldn't help that person with CPR or something bad happened. And you, you are going to have that moment where you just, it's the initial starting moment. And I said, we don't want to talk to people about it because we've been trained. We've been taught. Don't talk about it. You're a pussy man up, walk it off, suck it up, buttercup. And, and I say, that's bullshit. And I say, but I also know what it's like to feel like you don't matter to the people around you. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like if they didn't instigate it by asking if I was okay, I didn't feel comfortable reaching out and saying, I need help. And so I tell all of them when I teach, I said, I am always here. I'm in the state email. You know my name. You can look me up in the email. If you feel you have literally no one else to talk to, you can talk to me and I will always make time no matter what I am doing to talk to you because I would rather talk you through a dark moment and try to get you help than have to shroud my badge later because you took an out that that probably not probably that wasn't worth it because there were other options but you were in such a bad dark place you like me you didn't know there were other options you know, and I just, I try to try push that. And I try to be very sincere when I ask people, when we have people who have had bad calls, we had one recently that was a two-year-old who drowned. And I remember going to each of the coworkers who worked it and getting a hug and being like, are you okay? And like a look straight in the eye, like not just a passing, "Yeah, right." Like, are you okay? Can I do anything for you? And meaning it, Because you have to mean it because then that puts that depth and that weight behind, you can come to me and I will help you. And, uh, because I don't, I don't want anybody else to feel the way I felt because it's such a scary and sad and lonely place. And, uh, we, we need to, release and let go of the stigma and we need to talk about it. And it's not easy. And I do still have moments where I feel ashamed and embarrassed that I had a suicide attempt, but, you know, people have been really kind about it. And I think that was always my fear is that, Oh, people are going to judge you and they're going to be shitty and they're going to be harsh. And I think that I wasn't giving, you know, people enough credit for how good they are. Um, And they were, they've been kind about it and understanding and that makes it easier to talk about. And that makes it easier for other people to talk about it. And you just kind of have to keep that snowball going because it's the only way you're going to affect change. And it's the only way that things are going to get better is by talking about it and, and bringing light to it, you know, and, uh, the only way, the only way out is through, you know, and, um, And we take away shame and guilt by voicing those things, you know, we take away the shame and the guilt we feel by just saying it out loud because all these times and so often we feel like we're alone and we're the only one dealing with a thing. But once you voice it, you have other people go, oh no, I I feel that way too. And oh yeah, I've been feeling that way too. And you realize (laughs) I've been alone in this room full of other people who've also felt they're alone this whole time and you never knew it. And you, Because you didn't, you didn't speak, you know, your truth. And it's a lot of other people's truths, too.
0: Absolutely. There's two people I had on the show that have both got very powerful statements that underline what you said. Dr. Edith Eger, who's a psychologist, and she was an Auschwitz survivor in World War II. Um, she says the opposite of depression is expression, meaning cry, you know, punch a punch bag, you know, talk to people. And then Johan Hari says the opposite of addiction is connection same thing. So both of those are telling you to communicate. If you want to heal, you have to reach out, you have to talk.
1: Well, exactly. And when I went through the the PTSD retreat in Idaho, one of the things that the clinician Amy uh, told us was that, like, they say that 80% 80 of the shame and guilt that you feel is alleviated just by speaking that shame, just by saying, I feel this and I feel ashamed of it. And I feel guilty because of it. You alleviate the majority of those feelings of shame and guilt just by speaking it. But we've been taught so much, you know, like my experiences, you know, they, we don't want to disrupt the flow. We don't want to make people uncomfortable with icky feelings. And it's like, But by making, having this momentary, I'm not doing okay, makes everybody better for it. We all benefit from that, but we all, we all suffer from other people's suffering. We just don't realize it. And that's the thing is it's it's a silent suffering because we don't realize how much it's affecting all of us.
0: Absolutely. Well, Beth... It's been an incredible conversation. I know we waited a long time to do it, but my God, two and a half hours, it was worth the wait. Um, Firstly, I'm sure people listening, you know, are going to want to reach out to you, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, maybe a, a cry for help, but more often just, just to communicate, just to follow you, just to, you know, to, to be another dispatcher that's obviously out there, you know, dealing with, with what you guys go through. So where are the best places for people to, to find you online?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, I have an Instagram, but I don't use it. Literally the tag says I'm old and I don't know how Instagram works. So I'm (laughs) still, I'm still primarily on Facebook. Um, I know that I, you know, messages that come in on Facebook can kind of go to purgatory, but I do check those because people have reached out and said just some incredibly kind, heartwarming things that, that, um, I sometimes have saved, you know, for rainy days when, like, when you're looking for a W, sometimes, you know, those kind words, you know, so I do check that. um, But I am on Facebook, Beth Bowersocks, Beth Marie Bowersocks, I think.
0: (laughs) Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you. And I, and I, I say this kind of closing to everyone who's, who's bore their soul on, on this conversation, because I understand that, that takes a little bit away. I mean, it could be healing as well, but bring you know, bring someone down through some of these traumas is definitely asking a lot. But I know the the result, the connection, the messages after, and they're usually to the guests, not to me. But I but I hear them secondhand. But that I thought I was crazy. I thought I was being weak. All these things. So telling your courageous story. Um, is so so important, so I can't thank you enough not only your generosity with the time and telling you know such an incredible array of different you know perspectives but also just for being so courageous and being someone you know who is putting themselves out there to to therefore open the door for other people to say, Oh shit, I thought I was alone let me start talking about this
1: i that's very kind of you to say that I, I don't take compliments well. So I'm just kind of like smiling and and talking and thank you. And, and I just to say more than anything is no, you know, it's easy to, like I said, it's easy to think you're alone. It's easy to think you are the only person suffering from whatever you're suffering from, but you're not you there, you know, there's more in this world that connects us than sets us apart from each other. And you know, it's it's cliche to say it. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay. It's okay to that's human. But what's not okay is to stay that way and to continue on that path. Because as alone as you may think you are, there are people who love you. And I didn't know that until they reached out when I needed it. But there are people who love you, and there are people who will miss you when you're gone. And uh, you know, you are worth. You are worth health and happiness to whoever needs to hear it you are worthy of normalcy and a good night's sleep and happiness and health and you are worthy of a w in that column and um and whatever you need to do to to get there do it because you're worth it so take care of yourselves be kind to each other